This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers, adult language, and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to a podcast of Rare Antiquities. This Tuesday night, we're sending you back to the future. Episode 30. I am your host, Jeff. And I am your co-host, Harry. And I'm crashing yet again. I'm Nathan. All right. Hey, welcome to the show, guys. Another sort of mini milestone for us, episode number 30. And doing a bit of a special edition tonight, deviating from our regular uh, routine of more obscure films. And we're going to talk about the Back to the Future trilogy. So uh, welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for coming on today. So let's jump into things as we uh, often do and reminisce a little bit. Harry, why don't you talk a little bit about your memories of Back to the Future from the 1985 original to the 89 and 90 sequels? I never watched any of these in the theater. Fortunately, these were more always catch on TV movies, even though I was a fan. I wouldn't say a massive fan. The one thing I do remember, though, is two things. Is one that the fire tracks when DeLorean first disappears and you see those fire tracks go under Marty and the dock. I would, my house that I was growing up in, we had a back alley and me and my neighbors around the same age as I was, we'd pour gasoline in tracks, stand over them, and then the other person would light it. So, of course you did. Of yeah, course so, you did that. Yeah, yeah. So that's one thing that came out of that, I remember. And then another thing, I'm not sure if you would talk about this in the trivia is that i kind of remember when back to the future 2 came out it felt like back to the future 3 was released in the same summer because i remember mm. for some reason i have this weird memory of like a friend saying he's seeing back to the future and then like back to the future 2 and a few short weeks later he's going to see the third one and i was like what that didn't make any sense to me so okay yeah well i, I guess we could we could sweep that away right now i mean back to the future 2 and 3 were filmed back to back and Back to the Future 2 came out in 1989, in the fall of 89, and then Back to the Future 3 came out in summer of 1990. So they were about six months apart as they were made together, but they were not in the same exact time time frame. So That's got to be, uh, I'm wondering if that's like kind of a record for a sequel to come out. I know that sequels have been filmed back to back. There's many Bond movies. We talked uh, most of Superman 2 was filmed at the same time as Superman. But to be released that quickly back to back, I'm wondering if that's kind of a, a record in Hollywood. Yeah, it's probably pretty close. We'd have to do some checking. The Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolutions were pretty close together. I think they were released in the same calendar year, one in summer and one in the following fall. So that was that would probably be the other films that were right next to each other as far as sequels go. But yeah, so Nathan, what about yourself? What's your recollection of when these movies came out and anything you can kind of remember from your childhood around Back to the Future? Well, you know, I kind of remember like, you know, neighborhoods being set on fire at the time. I don't know why I'm thinking <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> I have a like a recollection of maybe seeing the first one in the theater. But I mean, it's kind of it, like tied up with memories of being taken there with my uncle. And based on what my mother has said, it's just, she said, there's no way I would have let you go to a movie with your uncle at that age uh, in that year. <laughs> and I, I remember watching this movie all the time on TV 
and it would have the crazy like TV safe edits, you know, like geez Louise and stuff. I remember when two and three were going to come out, I was so amped to go see it. I even, I was even buying into the hype of the hoverboard being real and everything like that. I was, I'm still convinced they're real. They're kind of I, almost here. It, not really, yeah. but I'd say in the next 20, 30 years, you'll probably see a hoverboard, a legit one, maybe. A legit one, yeah. The only actual strong memory I have that I think is probably a real one is seeing the third movie with you, Jeff, and I'm pretty, and, and kind of leaving the theater and walking back home. I can't remember what it was. I mean, we'll kind of get into it, but I'm not sure if, if you remember that at all, but I kind of remember leaving them all after seeing that. But my excitement for when two was coming out, I mean, I, I was so jazzed and I, I remember very vividly obsessing over it. Yeah, no, I, I have that vague recollection of leaving them all as well, walking home after the movie, but probably because we got in an argument. I'm sure that's why the memory is strong. <laughs> quite possible. Well, I'll, I'll tell you guys a little bit about my memory. I think, Nathan, I share some of those memories about going to see the first one in the theater and some of those memories being refuted due to the company that we were keeping but the more interesting question here is is your uncle <laughs> yeah yeah uh yeah, um, unless it's a bad well memory. he's well he has passed away but he My he did have a bit of a drug problem uh, i have very fond memories of him like he was not a i ne never remembered him as a bad person or our other uncle as well who i may or may not have been with us that but i think jeff like maybe we just reinforced it back and forth over the years but and or maybe someone else was there with us i'm pretty sure that he was at least there when we went and saw it yeah no i think so and i also think the consensus is that it, he was well loved by everybody just not necessarily well trusted by everybody <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i have a strong recollection of you know i would have been about six years old at the time trying like i could not understand uh, you know at the end of the movie not that we want to get into all the details but I, I have a strong recollection not being able to understand how marty was in two places at once when he's watching himself uh, he's watching the parking lot scene unfold at the end I, I couldn't i didn't get it and and i kept trying to like i kept asking questions of all of the frustrated adults around me like how this was possible and yeah i shared the excitement for when the second one was coming out i absolutely could not wait to see that couldn't wait to see what the future looked like you know like that was going to be that was going to be yeah, the most exciting thing ever we'd never really seen the near future before you know it was always the far-flung future star trek or other science fiction this was going to be how you know our world and for some reason that the excitement just did not did not have a cap on it i couldn't have been more excited and as, as for the third one i mean it kind of again they were both coming out within a few months of each other so so you know they were sort of tied together it probably didn't get a chance the third one to ride the wave of that excitement and, you know, so it was kind of coming down off the high to see the third one. But anyway, so that's the recollection. Harry, I'm surprised to hear that you did not go to see any of these in the theater. That's well, just downright. Well, when shocking. I was when I was young, like, as I mentioned in a couple other podcasts, most of my experiences with all of these movies were just on TV. We really didn't see a lot of movies in the theater. The only ones that I really did see fully were the Star Wars ones. As I said, when I got into my teenage years, then it was like different. But when I was young, it was really just Star Wars and Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> I got dragged by my cousin to see it. I mean, I'm happy that that happened. But funny story, I forgot my glasses at home and I was visiting in Edmonton at my cousin's house. And I forgot my glasses at home and my only memory is my uncle just yelling at me. 
<laughs> Paid for your ticket. All you see is blurry pictures now. So. Is your dad Larry David or your, your uncle Larry <laughs> David? <laughs> and yeah, that uncle is sadly passed away as well. So it's a fond memory. <laughs> Some weird parallels here. I'll throw some trivia out and then we'll roll into the films here. So Back to the Future, we'll we'll talk about first. Came out the summer of 1985. Pretty modest budget, even for the mid-80s. $19 million approximate budget. And its domestic gross was $210 million. So Back to the Future was a smash hit for Universal Studios. And, you know, obviously we're here over 30 years later talking about it. There's still still holds a, a place in pop culture. I mean, there's still conventions. There's still new toy lines that come out, you know, new games, ongoing comic books. The Shoes. Uh, Back to the Future. What's that? The Shoes. The Shoes. Yeah, The Shoes. We can talk about The Shoes. I mean, it has not faded from pop culture. It's still out there for sure, which, which is nice to see, I think. Cool little uh, story. If you watch the commentary on the DVD or the Blu-ray, I mean, it's it's not a it's not an obscure one, but I, I always thought it was funny. Head of Universal Studios at the time, Sid Sheinberg, he did not like the title Back to the Future, and he sent a uh, a memo to the director Robert Zemeckis and had suggested an alternate title, Spaceman from Pluto for Back to the Future. And his thinking was that uh, he didn't like... Well, to pull from that one scene, yeah, when he goes to visit his father there as Darth Vader from Vulcan, only he suggested that scene be changed so that he was, you know, so-and-so from Pluto. And his, his reasoning was that the title was confusing, Back to the Future. What happened around the title is uh, Steven Spielberg, who's a producer on the film, he actually sent a memo back to Sid Sheinberg saying, wow, that was a really hilarious joke. Thanks. We all had a good laugh about it on the set. Such a funny guy. Ha ha ha. And, That's a good uh, way of kind of dousing the fire. The big boss is like, you know, wants to make a change and here's the best way to say fuck you, but politely. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So credit to Steven Spielberg for saving. I don't think Spaceman from Pluto would have been the smash hit that Back to the Future became. But it was kind of a neat story. Now, that being said... Like Spielberg needs uh, a few notes sent back his way these days. Well, these days, maybe so. Speaking of Spielberg, in a way, and Harry, you'll probably like this. Sid Sheinberg had a number of notes for the original screenplay. One of the original ideas for the time machine, before they had the idea to build it into a car, was that it was going to be inside a refrigerator taken to an atomic bomb test site. <laughs> As I said, Spielberg yeah. also needs to get worked. <laughs> so that was and this the is, goes back to what I was telling you. Remember a while we've had this conversation a couple of times that Spielberg himself has gotten quite lucky because other people have actually shot down his ridiculous ideas going all the way back to Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark. Well, and you know what? That's probably that's true for probably every single successful director. They eventually, I mean, they, they obviously they thought that was stupid. They did come up with the car eventually, built it into the DeLorean because it looked kind of futuristic, especially with the gullwing doors. They still maintained or retained the idea of a nuclear blast playing a part at the end of the film, the original ending, and they storyboarded this out, and you can see it on the Blu-ray or the DVD, Marty had to drive the DeLorean into an atomic explosion in order to get back to the future, and that was the climax of the film, and that was shot down as well, partly because of budget, but also partly because 
They didn't want to bring, you know, we're still in the Cold War. They didn't want to make nuclear weapons part of the story. They just didn't think that was going to play very well. So Sid Sheinberg, again, speaking of him, he shot down the original idea of Doc having a chimpanzee as a sidekick instead of a dog named Einstein. Without that studio head, we would have seen Doc Brown palling around with a chimpanzee in a diaper. Coco the monkey. (laughs) (laughs) Not all suggestions from studio heads are stupid. So, And then famously, just to, to wrap up the trivia here, the original casting of Eric Stoltz as Marty McFly. Michael J. Fox was originally wanted for Marty. He was the first choice, but his commitment to family ties made that impossible. They brought on Eric Stoltz. They filmed for six weeks with Eric Stoltz, which is a long time for a movie that had a pretty short production schedule. And they gave him the boots. It just was not working out. They didn't have any chemistry. The lines were flat. The comedy just wasn't there. They went after Michael J. Fox again and worked up a shooting schedule. So Michael J. Fox basically worked, you know, 12 hours a day on family ties and then would work you know, overnight on Back to the Future, get a couple hours sleep and then and then do that again. And he did that for basically for seven days a week for the entire shooting schedule of the first film. So he was certainly, uh, yeah, good for him. I mean, that's a tough shooting schedule, but we get some magic after all. So I have one thing I just want to add, because I I just thought of this now, Jeff, as you were going over the the trivia and brought up Eric Stoltz. The TV show Fringe had like a little bit of an in-joke where on the alternate Earth, Jeff, I know you've watched Fringe, Harry. I don't know if you ever watched it, but not uh, this, OK, well, the, and on the alternate Earth, the two guys come out of a movie theater and it's Back to the Future starring Eric Stoltz. Now, I kind of wonder if that version on that Earth had the chimp, had the fridge and <laughs> and the bomb as well. <laughs> All those elements, like just how weird that would have been. That would have been pretty awesome, actually. And they they did have neat little in jokes on Fringe like that as yeah. well. But yeah, no, that's pretty cool. All right, well, why don't we jump into the movie here? Do you guys have any thoughts before we sort of start our thoughts on Back to the Future? Well, I guess the only thing I would was wondering, I guess we can talk about, about it when as we go through, but just Michael J. Fox in, in general. You know, yeah. like, uh, the unfortunate you know reality of his Parkinson's disease has kind of removed him from major acting roles these days. He's pretty much retired at this point. I know he was doing some small things here and there, and I know he was on Curb fairly recently in a few episodes but aside from that, he hasn't done much because he's just unable to. He was in The Good Wife a number of times, and he was really good in that because he sort of played, well, not against type is the, the wrong way to put it, but he's kind of a jerk in that. And it was a very kind of different way, even though he had like they at times, I thought, played up the disease a little bit too much. They changed it for his character, but I thought it was interesting to see him as like almost predatory lawyer. It was an interesting role. Considering what's happened to him, he's still done very well for for himself, and he's able to kind of poke fun at the disease that he's unfortunately been dealing with. It just, for me, is just really sad. It's not that it's hard to watch Michael J. Fox. It's just, I thought he had a lot of potential as a comedic actor. It's really just a shame that we are robbed with you know, from all these future roles he could have been in. And I know he was more on the TV side towards the end of his career, but, you know, I remember in the 90s, he was a really big, pretty much everywhere, a lot of movie roles. So and I always enjoyed him in most of everything I watched him in. I mean, he actually did have his own show. I don't remember which network, but it was a network and that it was only one or two years ago called the Michael J. Fox show. And he was obviously the main character on there. It just didn't get picked up. It wasn't 
it just wasn't very well reviewed. It wasn't well watched. Nobody, you know, just ratings. But he's on TV fairly recently. The show didn't do all that well. So if it, I mean, who knows if it had been fine, he might still be a working actor, you know. But yeah, he's definitely tapered off a bit. His role as himself on Curb Your Enthusiasm, I thought was really funny because he was also kind of a dick on that show. I mean, everybody's a dick to Larry David because he's such an asshole. So oh, it's sort no, of no, fitting. No, no, no. Take that back. Larry is a god amongst nobodies. <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. We'll go with that, like a lesser god, maybe, like more of a demigod than an actual god, I think. So, yeah, we'll talk more about Michael J. Fox as we go through here. So, you know, I'm not going to do the scene-by-scene breakdown of Back to the Future. I think we've all seen the film enough times to idea what's going on. So we'll just talk about, you know, different topics. And you guys can feel free to, you know, jump in and bring things up as, as we go. Let's talk about Christopher Lloyd and Michael J. Fox and their performances. Obviously, those two guys and their relationship anchors the trilogy. So Nathan, why don't you start us off here? Just tell us, you know, what your thoughts are with those two guys, their performance and and the chemistry between those two guys. Well, you know, considering like how late into the production that Michael J. Fox, you know, when he entered, it's great that him and Christopher Lloyd had such great chemistry because I think they did recast, I think they recast the girlfriend. I mean, that's a smaller did they not okay they, they, well, they did but the previous actress uh, when they had kind of had eric stoltz they they she never filmed any scenes oh i see okay so yeah i think it's funny because these two really carry the movie there's so many great performances in it but it's them playing off each other that carries a lot of the movie for me and you know it was a very long time before i ever thought it was weird that a teenager was hanging out with this old creepy dude <laughs> you know yeah. Um, Still is kind of a little strange. It's it's weird. I I want to know like how that started exactly, and then but because of the timeline, Doctor Brown kind of forced this friendship at all. I don't know. It's, it's pretty strange. Is that the excuse um, of every pedophile? I'm not sure. Well, yeah, I was gonna say. I was like, <laughs> you know, when I was that young, I hung out with old guys all the time, and now that I'm older, I'm hanging out with teenagers all the time. So maybe it's not that strange. <laughs> Also, I really think Christopher Lloyd's actually quite, or at least was quite a good actor back in the day because I used to watch Taxi all the time. I always got a laugh out of him. And I think they have, I mean, later in the movie, there's, I mean, it's probably one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie, like the really emotional scene that they have before a final scene of Marty actually going back to the future. That interchange and everything like that is just, it's great. And those actors play off each other really well. You're right. It, without the quality of their interplay and just the just the chemistry that they have, you buy it, you buy the relationship. You never really ask the question why this zany old mad scientist is friends with this slacker teenager. That relationship makes no sense, but you never even bother to ask a question because they're so good together. They sell it so well. I think that as the script developed, it kind of got written out how they became friends. I mean, originally they were selling bootleg VHS tapes in order to finance the time machine. So I think that the start of their relationship was sort of a Breaking Bad type of relationship where they had this sort of mini criminal enterprise going on. And that's how it got started. But they got rid of all of that shit, but didn't really replace it with anything. But that'd be a good SNL short. Look that'd be hilarious. There and do that. That'd be fun. <laughs> 
Yeah. So, Harry, what do you think about the chemistry between the two, the relationship between those two characters and, and the quality of the performance? Yeah, the performances goes without saying. Both are very stellar performances here. They have great chemistry. I agree. They completely make you forget why they're hanging out. You know, you could see almost like a reason why Doc Brown would want anybody to hang out with him because he's an eccentric loner. So if a younger adult is taking an interest in science or hanging out with him or helping him with his dog, I mean, he'll go along with it. The real interesting head scratcher is why would Marty McFly, who's interested in only girls and skateboarding and his band, would care to waste time with Doc Brown? But I agree with you that they don't really linger on that question and their chemistry is so good that you forget about it. But yeah, they both do. They have great comedic timing with each other. It's very natural. And it's a it was a great choice to good decision to get rid of Eric Stoltz. Nothing against him. I don't think I've ever seen any, him in anything. But yeah, Michael J. Fox definitely has better acting and comedic chops. The movie is just excels so well because of them. But the acting overall with the other characters, I mean, you know, uh, Leah Thompson and guy who plays Biff and, and also uh, Crispin Glover as George McFly. Even all the B players, they all do great jobs in this movie. So the acting all around is just very good. Excellent. That brings me to my next point. Let's talk a little about Crispin Glover. I don't even really know where to start with Crispin Glover. So yeah, Harry, you go with that. I think we all know kind of some of the issues after this movie. You know, his ego, and I think uh, the rumor had it that he was demanding too much money, and, you know, he thought he was a big shot and all that stuff, and the next big thing, and that's why he got slashed from the sequels and you know, created issues with him in Hollywood. But in this movie, I thought he was very good. Played the part mm. very well as a dorky, teenager, insecure father. He portrayed that insecurity at the beginning of the movie, and then, and then you see him with that insecurity and dorkiness, and, you know, he's a very relatable character when you see him as a younger person, or even as that, you know, dorky adult. And and then at the end, he's a bit more confident and because things changed for him because of Marty, you know, helping him out and stuff like that. And I thought he did a really good job personally. Yeah, I thought he did a good job and, you know, plays it over the top. But effectively, I especially love his original 1985 version where he's the old man loser and that stupid laugh that he has when he's watching <laughs> reruns and the big glasses on the issue of Crispin Glover. I think also, too, the other thing that sort of soured his relationship with Hollywood. I, I believe he sued the producers of Back to the Future when the second movie came out. Yeah, that's for true. Something using his likeness. And actually, another thing I like about the way this movie is layered is when I watched it as a kid, I didn't really understand a lot of the interplay when Marty goes back to the 50s and he's finding out things about his father. You know, and his father is, you know, talking about his, all his insecurities and stuff like that. And Marty kind of relates to it there, you know, with his music and his father's writing. As a kid, I didn't pick up on any of that. It's just like, whatever, this is just dumb stuff. Let's get to the, the cool stuff later. And uh, so I think it, it's just some really smart writing there. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, we'll and we'll definitely talk a, a bit about that later. Let's talk about Thomas F. Wilson, who played Biff Tannen. I love this guy in this role. I love the character of Biff Tannen, perhaps a little bit too aggressive for you know what's supposed to be a 17 year old kid but i thought he played that role fantastically you know he had lived a little bit legend has it that he that thomas wilson came up with the line make like a tree and get out of here on set <laughs> such a great line <laughs> such a great line it's one of the best and butthead as well i think they say was also his creations i mean is this an effective antagonist for the movie and does he 
again, like I say, I think he comes across a little aggressive for a 17-year-old. I mean, more of a frat boy when he basically tries to rape Lorraine at the end there. Let's talk a bit about Biff and Thomas Wilson. Uh, Harry, what do you think? Oh, excellent acting by this guy. I guess he just got typecast. I'm not sure what his story is after this, but thought he did a really good job in at least the first two and I guess mostly in the third one. Yeah, I have no issues. I think I've seen, I remember in high school, they were big, tough, frat boy-esque type characters like this even in high school and exactly like Biff. And it's not that it's unheard of that guys like that try and, you know, take advantage of girls even at that age. So 17, 16, 17, 18, if you're, you know, you got the size and you got the ability, unfortunately, some of those idiots just they act that way. Not surprising to me. So I thought he fit the bill very well. So it didn't seem like a stretch to me. And I thought he did a very good job. I love how he was able to portray himself as like, you know, this confident loser in the future in the original timeline. And then that, you know, he's still a loser when he was younger. And then <laughs> a different type of loser, you know, a more passive. He's lost all of his confidence at the end of the movie. So I thought that was really great. So good arc for the character. Yeah, I, I loved his, like, the new 1985 version of him after Marty changes everything. And he's, he's just such a wimp. And he's like, yeah. he kind of does the Christopher Reeve thing, you know, with Clark Kent. Now his shoulders are all slumped. Yeah. And he's yeah, hot, totally. a little bit more of a hunch and a little joyful and hoppy. And I thought that was kind of funny. So, yeah, I thought that was hilarious and excellent play by him. Just a, another bit of trivia here. He actually carries around with him a postcard because he gets approached on the street like all the time and people want to say shit to him uh, thinking he's Biff, right? As, as actors are often mistaken for the characters that they're most famous for. So he doesn't engage with those fans. He takes the card out of his pocket and he hands it to them and it, it's like an FAQ card saying, you know, like, no, I'm not Biff and has some trivia from the movies and stuff. So it's kind of a funny thing that he does. He actually does a lot anything, of... Though? He's actually... He does a lot. He does stand up comedy still, but he's still worked as an actor. I have not seen him in a yeah, thing he, beyond these. Movies. He does. He does a lot of voice over work, but he he's a pair. He's appeared as you know in live action stuff, but a lot of stuff as a, a voice actor now. So Nathan, what about you? Do you want to weigh in on Biff Tannen? Yeah, no, I really like Thomas Wilson. And yeah, you know, by all accounts, he's supposed to be like a super sweet guy. And so the character of Biff is just the exact opposite of what he's really like. Although I heard he did not get along with Eric Stoltz. That's what I read once. He didn't um, like Eric Stoltz being hardcore method actor for this type of movie. So oh, yeah, they, they didn't dig he it. Was, he was method on this? Eric Stoltz demanded that everybody call him Marty and he would stay in costume like on his way to and from the set. Oh, Jesus. Who is he? Fucking Jared Leto? Come on, man. <laughs> Yeah, really. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, Harry, to your point, or I remember like a lot of guys kind of like this as well, that, you know, and overall, I think a lot of 80s bullies were played this way uh, in movies. Even though he's maybe just a tad more murderous than what was probably normal for a high school bully. And I thought that the way he was just kind of like, yeah, just a complete dum-dum the whole time, but so confident. And I like that switch at the end. I mean, that's some pretty good acting right there to go from the, you know, still like the adult bully to the almost almost effeminate type of character towards the end. It's still strange to me that they would even let him around the house. You know, because yeah. the, oh, the, yeah, the date really rape thing. Point. Like, why would they even want? I guess you could see that maybe George McFly was kind of a dick this whole time because that's <laughs> yeah. his revenge. Yeah. You know, you can now be my <laughs> yeah. servant. Yeah. <laughs> but I would I but, would just say this guy kind of almost raped my now wife. Why the fuck yeah, do like, want him around my house? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, it, it's just, uh, you know. Well, that's for the um, movie, right? Like a, sign, a sign, that's for the movie. But still, I think it's also a sign of the times as well where the idea of, of date rape, I mean, I don't even know if that, 
term would have even been in the lexicon of the time, right? So it's like, well, you know, it's just the thing that kind of happened and, you know, they kind of gloss over it now. Like there's no way, I mean, they could, they would probably still maybe do that scene, but it's kind of hard to imagine that McFly would allow this monster to be around his family 30 years later. So I just picture George McFly, you know, just like when, you know, at the end, he's like double, you know, questioning Biff and doubting Biff about the wax or the second coat of wax. And he goes, now, Biff, you're not trying to screw me, are you? It's like, is that the kind of tone he would take if he saw Biff trying to, you know, rape his wife again? Now, Biff, (laughs) not trying to screw me again, are you? (laughs) What he should have done is just walked out of that street and just punched him right in the face again and said, you're going to do that second coat, Biff. Um, But, uh, you know, all through, actually, I like him through all three of these movies. So let's talk a little bit about some of the other aspects of the production here. I wanted to talk about the music, the score by Alan Silvestri and, you know, uh, you know, a lot of the songs by Huey Lewis and the News. So originally, Alan Silvestri had done a score for the opening of the film, sort of an opening. I don't know. I don't want to say jingle is not the right word, but that was eventually cut. So his score doesn't start until I think it's 18 minutes into the film is the first time you hear the score for this film. I want to ask the question, is this score or the theme song for Back to the Future, is it among, you know, the iconic 80s scores? Is it there with John Williams and so forth? Nathan, I'll let you weigh in first. Mm, you know, that's tough. You know, I, I love the theme music. And, you know, it, for me, it invokes, you know, some warm fuzzies when I hear it. And it, it plays really well in certain scenes and some of the other pieces of the score. Hard to say how truly iconic it is because it's not it's not like a John Williams score where they'll, you'll sometimes see a pop up like, you know, like Superman is an easy one where it's mm-hmm. just used as a shorthand. Right. And everyone yes. instantly knows it. Everyone instantly knows Star Wars, you know, like Jurassic Park. People know that one. I don't ever really see or see here any of the score from this movie used anywhere else as sort of a, a shorthand, but it's instantly recognizable, I think. You're, um, you're talking yeah. more about the the motif or letimoth that if, if that's the proper term, which I think it is that John Williams uses for, you know, shorthand as you're talking about is relatable themes to a character. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I don't know if we really have that uh, in the movie. I meant more shorthand or like when you have just some music that's just instantly recognizable to just a property in general, right? And Back to the Future, it has a theme song that's very recognizable, but I don't know if it's on like a, le- a level of a lot of other 80s movies necessarily. It's probably, it's up there. But I think that a lot of it, a lot of the score of this film work plays really well with certain scenes. The one scene I mentioned before, that's a favorite of mine when they're having their final interaction together before he goes back to the future, that music that plays, I mean, when I just hear that alone, when I was watching the movies and I was watching over the credits, that piece of the score comes up, immediately thought back to that that scene. And it, it's, to me, it, it's it, it invokes a lot of feelings. Yeah, Harry, I'll let you weigh in on the score because I know you're definitely a big fan of a movie scored well. Yeah, and I hate to say it, but this movie and the trilogy is unfortunately not scored very well. It is an above-average score, and the main theme is very recognizable. I would say like those few notes, just like you know that when Superman's notes come in, it's like da 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 da, and then you know that you have Back to the Future's kind of very short four or five notes that kind of identify the main theme is there. 
And it's up there with some of the more 80s iconic notes or themes, but it's about four notes. And what happens, and I've noticed through not just this movie, but the entire trilogy, is that he really only uses those notes, and then he has other music, too, that feels ripped out of Predator. Like, there's a kind of a little bit of a militaristic march that I found action scenes or the lead-up to action scenes, more of the suspenseful thing, scenes that are happening in the movie. It felt like I was watching Predator, and I think Alan Silvestri scored Predator. So whether this came first or Predator came first I don't know probably this came first but it just felt like I was listening to Predator and it's not that unique and that's part of the problem I have and the rest of the action tracks kind of just replay the same music over and over and over again even within the same movie and it was a bit disappointing when you're young you don't really care too much because the main themes kind of stands out and it's like ooh okay, that's cool. And, you know, you get a little older and now we're trying to critique it a little bit more. I was a bit let down. I haven't seen these movies in a while. So when I went back, it's something I paid attention to. And yeah, I was a bit disappointed in the score. The second two, I strongly agree with that. Like where the score, I mean, it, it doesn't even match the scene that's playing sometimes. He just throws in a few, just throws in like some of the iconic music and then it's just over and back to regular music. And it's really, it's very noticeable in the second two movies. Yeah, it's really just sort of variations on the main. It's not very, there isn't a whole lot of depth. There aren't different beats for different characters. There aren't different beats for different types of scenes. You know, it's basically the main theme. But I think that, like, overall, the score is not of a terrific quality. But the main theme of Back to the, the main Back to the Future theme itself, I mean, I put right up there. It's not John Williams quality, but I mean, I'll put the main theme right up there. And that theme plays so well in the right scenes, especially the climax of the film. I think it's right up there, personally. I like the light sort of piano notes that Yeah, I uh, like that those play. moments better where they're sprinkled out, those little, yeah. they're not piano notes, but they're almost like chimes. Well, I don't know. Well, what is, yeah, what, yeah, what is that? What it is. But it's, yeah. it, I know what you're talking about. I like those notes. But again, that's also repeated numerous times throughout all three movies. Yeah, they lean very heavily on the same things. And, you know, maybe that speaks to part of the simplicity of the films, of the plot. There aren't a lot of twists and turns. There's a lot of simplicity here and, you know, we can talk about that better or worse, but, but the main theme, again, I, I think it's right up there. I think it's really good. Let's talk a little bit about some of the central items here. And I, I mean, we're still kind of talking about the first one, but we can definitely stretch it across the trilogy. I want to talk about the different time periods that, that we see. We have three different versions of the 80s. Two of them are very similar. We have the 50s, we have the future, and we have the Old West. You know, I have a couple thoughts on these different time periods and how these time periods are portrayed in the films. Perry, let's start with you. Any thoughts about, you know, how we see the progression of time in these films and the different eras that are portrayed? Is there anything else going on underneath the surface here or is it just, you know, fun adventure? If I'm stretching it across all three movies, is that what we want to do? I mean, you can take it how you want. I mean, if we want to take the first one, you know, it's the 80s versus the 50s. That might be the easiest way to go. But I'll start with that. Like, let's just compare the 80s to the 50s. I mean, I think there's more depth in the first one when we talk about, like, I think there's some more cleverness to the story in Back to the Future 2. The original Back to the Future is a very simple story, but it's so tight and natural and it flows so well. When you're just talking about the different time periods, I mean, it's quite obvious. You could see the how things are different with respect to, you know, not just the technology or how people dress, those obvious things that you see, but, you know, the relations between women and men, how men treat women. You know, there's a lot going on there. But then when you also talk about the Old West or you talk about the future, you don't really get a lot of deviation from that. 
Because we're really only talking about Biff. You know, yeah. Biff's really the only character you see, and he's an ass in all of them. So he's treating women exactly the same way as he'd treat in any time period. It doesn't matter. But I guess if you want to look at under the surface stuff, you could see the mistreatment of women, I think, is one of the main talking points you could see there. Because you have Marty's semi, like you only get a few brief scenes with his girlfriend. So it's really hard to talk about how, you know, respectful he is to her. Because I even noted down here in the beginning of the original one, he's having a conversation with his girlfriend. And he's still, you know, doing the double take right in front of her with his jaw to the ground when he sees other hot women pass by. And she has to pull his face back to get his attention back onto her. And that's, you know, again, very demeaning characteristic of males. So there's not a lot of growth there, but you can see that even in the 50s, it was even worse. So, I mean, you you get those kind of underlying themes. I'm not sure if Mm. that's kind of your question. Because obviously then you have technology, you have race relations, like, you know, black people not being able to vote. And they kind of poke fun at that. And the mayor's, you know, Goldie, whatever his name is he'll be the future mayor. So you see some progression there. Yeah. You know, they kind of poke fun at some of those unfortunate realities in the past, right? They point them out. Yeah. No, that's exactly my question for sure. Nathan, what are your thoughts there? Yeah. You know, I think like, again, it's it's sort of a, a product of, of its own time, even in the 80s when they're trying to make a little bit more social progress. And, you know, the idea of, you know, political correctness was, I mean, pretty new at the time. A lot of the jokes were just that juxtaposition of look how much progress we've made from the 50s. And even though the 50s is like, this weird caricature that it just seems like someone like saw Greece and then it's like, okay, I want to make that the 50s now, right? And, you know, I think certainly for a lot of the viewership of this movie who just would have been kids, I mean, the 50s is this weird alien world that you, you just don't get. And so I know as a kid, I bought a lot of that, but like, I think it's Goldie Wilson. Is Goldie that the Mayor name? Goldie Wilson. Yeah. And it's like a weird caricature of a black man in a way. It's not like, I, w- I don't know if I would say it's offensive necessarily, but it's, yeah, it wasn't a hundred percent racist. It was just like, no, but it, it, racist. it certainly borders it. Sort of the other things like, you know, glossing over the, the peeping Tom stuff and like the whole date rape thing is still kind of not played as a joke, but it's like, yeah, whatever. So there's a lot of those social issues that for a, a comedy, like they're kind of dark and sort of glossed over. Even the eighties becomes a caricature of itself in a a way, which is weird because it's right at the end of the 80s. But I thought that the portrayal of the 50s, as I've gotten older, I've just seen the fakeness of it. I mean, I still love the movie to death, but I mean, it's like, ooh, like this is, it doesn't quite work as well for me as it did when I was younger. Sorry, just to counter that, I think the story is so tight that you really, the story is about he's trying to get, you know, his dad and his mom together. And obviously he wants to see them together. He wants his dad to be a different person, more like he is, right? To respect his dad, because he didn't respect his dad in the original 80s. So I think that's really the core of the story, you know. Oh, no, I, I agree. That's faults, we find faults in I'm our parents nitpicking. right now. And, oh, for sure. Yeah. I absolutely agree with you, Harry. I just mean like, you know, just sort of nitpicking like the, the juxtaposition of the different time periods. If you want to get into like Marty's like like uh, core drivers, then then yeah. Like, I mean, a lot of this stuff, I mean, it's small. I don't necessarily, I only notice it like just when I'm sitting trying to watch it a little more critically. Again, it's a credit of the movie that, I mean, the story is just tight enough that you can kind of gloss over. And it's not a movie about social comedy. It's a comedy adventure. And so certainly Marty's journey and like how his relationship develops with his father 
which it's, I think, again, like the great thing about the writing is his core thing is just like, I need to live. I just want to live. So he, I don't think he has any intention of like truly changing his father. I mean, if anything, no, but towards the end comes, of the yeah, movie, I agree with you. So that shocked. comes at the end of the yeah. movie, right? I think it you know, does. And it was never, I mean, I don't think it was intention. In fact, if anything, I mean, he was just more surprised. He's, well, he even says it too. I and mean, he's so surprised at the change in his father that when he goes back, he's not really expecting any changes. But I just mean like, as far as like comparing the time periods, I did like that they're showing like how, like what a weird world it is. Because when I think of like 1985, that's not, I don't really feel like that's very different from now. And we're long, we're just over more than 30 years from 1985. The worlds of in the movie, 85 and 55 are, I mean, it may as well be the 30s from, from 1985. I, I like the way that they played it, but certainly it's a little not as genuine when you, you know, as you maybe get a little bit older. Is there an indictment of either time period, though? I mean, either you find that they are critical of either time period versus the other. I think they're making fun of the 50s a little bit, you know, because they, they'll have the odd joke, you know, like say the, the plutonium jokes, like, you know, I'm sure plutonium is available in every corner drugstore. That's sort of like like sort of making fun oh, of the fifties and what yeah. how they uh, portrayed the future in the fifties, right? Like little jokes like that, the Ronald Reagan thing. So I don't know if it's necessarily an indictment. I mean, they're just poking fun at it. Yeah, but are I, they indict? I, I feel it's yeah. more just poking fun. You know, this is a simple movie. The story's fairly simple, even though you're dealing with time travel, and it can get a bit convoluted in the end to explain it for some people at least. Especially, it gets a little bit more complicated in the second one. I think it's a fairly simple movie. I don't think there was really any other hidden messages or any other topics or themes they were really trying to, you know, bring out onto the table. I disagree. I think that they're poking fun at the 80s. They play up the 50s for comedy with the cafe, with the chocolate milk and the, you know, and the the kids being how they are, the enchantment under the sea dance and all that BS. And there was that when Marty first arrives in the town square and there's that kid bouncing around on those pogo shoes and shit. Yeah, they play up the 50s is kind of goofy, but when you get to the 80s, I find there's a lot of cynicism when we see bits of the 80s. When So like when there's the triple X movie theater in the town square when Marty comes back to the future, you got Brett, the bum, you know, sleeping on the, the bus stop. And just it, the town seems like, like it's a bit of a dump. You know, you've got graffiti on certain things. It seems like it's see, not... I agree with you if you were just talking about the jump from the 50s to Biff's altered future of the 80s. Well, that's... Then it's you know, we can, yeah, then it's more sleazy but that's the alternate 1985 yeah. right but even in the regular 1985 it seems to me like they're kind of making fun of it like drop though they're not really trying to bring that out into focus I don't know. I mean, it seems to, I mean, you're right. It's in the backdrop, but it's like, it's always in the backdrop. I mean, in one of my favorite lines in the movie, when Doc Brown's like, well, who's president of the United States? And Marty's so confidently says Ronald Reagan. And he's such a joke to Doc Brown, like the actor. And he makes a whole joke about Ronald Reagan being president. It carries on for the next couple of scenes. That's a joke against the 50s, not against no, the 80s. I, I, mean, don't, I, I don't know, man. I, I, I see don't, what you're I saying, Jeff, but I, I think that's like us looking back on. Uh, no, because like, like, it goes further, though, because Doc's kind of, he says, like Marty keeps saying his things. He said, you know, he keeps saying heavy and Doc's like, what's wrong with the gravitational pull? Like the future must be a piece of shit. He talks about plutonium or or what or the radiation. I don't know if Doc, Doc is like, of course, the fallout from all the nuclear wars. Like this, but, okay, is but that's what... not the paranoia of the sixties. Yeah, no, I understand that that's paranoia of you know nineteen fifty five. But I think I mean, it's played for humor. But if you were to look at the nineteen eighty five that's portrayed here. They're not saying, like, life's great in the 80s. I think they're saying that, you know, life was kind of cool in the 50s. 
aside from, you know, rapey teenage bullies, uh, everything else was pretty solid. I, I think that's an interesting undertone to the film. Uh, I didn't get that at all, but that's okay. It's good to have a different interpretation. Did I, you I, I don't watch? <laughs> hey, man, they're making, good they're making jokes. To disagree. Way. That's like, fine. You could get joke. They, they went for it. <laughs> they did go for it. But OK, uh, we could talk about whether it's a difference in time frame or if it's just a sign of the time. So Marty, and we'll talk about his relationship with his father from the 50s, the teenage George McFly. So, you know, when Marty changes everything, you know, unwittingly, right, doesn't do it on purpose, comes back to the 80s and everything is different with his family. So the house, it's the same house, but everything's different. So it's been redecorated. So it doesn't look like it's from the 70s anymore. His brother's wearing a suit to the office as opposed to going to flip burgers sister has dudes chasing her parents are fit non-alcoholics father's successful writer but i was interested and i kind of have always been interested what this says about the definition of happiness and the definition of success so this seems to suggest that and i found it most in his brother it's like marty i always wear a suit to the office but it plays out amongst the other characters where the success is defined by success in career money and so on so perry what are your thoughts about that. I agree with you on that point. It's just, I really don't think that that was a, to me, it's not something that they're trying to, you know, do a commentary on. It's not social commentary here. I think it's just, we have spoiled rich people making movies and they're saying happiness, you know, you know, subconsciously it's like, okay, they, you know, they, they're just saying from the element of the story, they had an unhappy family and things weren't going well for them or as well. And now with some change, what's happened in the, on this little adventure, things are just better. And that, you know, you can look at it one way and saying, do I need money to be happy? Is that the commentary they're making? But that might be true. I don't think they're focusing on that commentary, but I just think it's just outcome of their parents having also a more better relationship that their kids are now better off for it. And unfortunately, mm. when you're dealing with a 30-second time frame in a movie, how do you express that? The other brother, Jimmy, he was uh, unemployed or working at McDonald's. Now he's working at an office and he's wearing a suit. How do you express that? Okay, I'm wearing a suit. You know, a sister who didn't have any relationship, good relationships, now she's got good relationships. Okay, and now Marty's got a car. So, you know, <laughs> I, I just look at it as simple as that. There are benefits of a, a couple who's more happily married. Now, their kids are actually a bit more yeah. successful out of that, but I don't think they're making a commentary that no, I need to be it's rich to be happy. Yeah, no, it's shorthand. I don't think they're making a commentary. I think it's subconscious underneath. This feels to me a product of like the Ronald Reagan America. It's not a conscious choice. It's I'm not even just... sure if it's that. I think it's just as simple. I got 30 seconds to show you the change. Yeah. How best can I do it for the audience? Yeah, what would make sense for everybody, yeah. right? Yeah, for sure. Nathan, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with Harry. They're just trying to uh, portray it as quickly as possible because, you know, they set up the family at the beginning of the movie. Jimmy Olsen is working at whatever deep fried chicken place. Sister's complaining about something. The mom is terrible. The dad's a loser. And then how do you just show it? Yeah, what we see at the end there. Although I do question why is Jimmy wearing a suit and working at the office, but also living with his parents? Nowadays, that's maybe normal, but in the And 80s, it's Saturday. Also, it's and Saturday. It's Saturday. Oh, and yeah. it's Saturday. Was it Saturday? Okay. It was. I he's working it overtime. That's American, man. You don't stop working. Uh, that's success. <laughs> I, that's a you know a working idiot. I work overtime on the weekends. I don't know about you. No, definitely not. Oh, okay, no. I work overtime on my Xbox on yeah. Saturday. <laughs> the CPU on my Xbox is the only thing pulling overtime on Saturday mornings. <laughs> this is podcasting, <laughs> Jeff. You've been counting money all your life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you got no, I, yeah, Mr. Brown. Harry, you're yeah, you, Harry. No, I think you're right. It's just they had to portray. They had to just portray this to the audience, like with no exposition. 
and then also kind of make it, you know, and still be a little bit zippy and make a joke of it. Yeah. Right. Because again, it, the scene where he comes out of the bedroom and everything's changed. I mean, they've got like five jokes in there, like packed in there. And it's like a 60 second scene tops. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's quick. It's very efficient. And I mean, I agree with you guys. They are just trying to use some shorthand to show the differences, like the improvements in the time. Like everything's better now because George stood up for himself. But what I find interesting is that as a sign of the filmmakers, like that's what was going Going, and it is very effective. It does portray exactly what they want it to. I don't know. It's more a commentary on us that that does work. But they weren't trying to do any commentary there. I, I mean, this is more of a meta thing on my perspective. So, yeah, it's kind of funny. I think that most stands out with the truck, Marty's truck, unfortunately. Yeah. But the thing I most take away from this is that in the original timeline, you see George, it was, and both the mom and the dad are losers, but they're on the other, the opposite ends of the table, not looking at each other, not talking to each other. She's just pining for the past. Mm-hmm just that glimmer of who he could have been in the past. And then yep. now they're, you see them in the future and they're together, hugging each other, holding hands, his arm around her. It's more about, you know, the family dynamic and the relationship with the parents and how that impacts the children. That's how I look at it. Yeah, and that's a good point, I think. That's a very stark contrast because they do not exchange any lines at the start. She's reminiscing about how they met and fell in love. And there's that glimmer in her eyes there. And he's just eating that giant bowl of peanut brittle watching Jackie Gleason with a stupid goddamn laugh that he has. Yeah, they're a functional, loving couple. So you're right. I think that is the most important piece to the situation there. So that's a good observation. I hadn't really thought about that. But that makes a lot of sense. One question I do have is, Obviously, they're successful. They have money. I got to ask, what the fuck has George McFly been doing for 30 years if this is his first novel? Anybody have an answer? No, I think he may have been a writer the whole time. Because when you look at the end of the second movie, when the newspaper changes... Biff kills him in the 70s, I think. Yeah, and yeah. when the newspaper changes, it says local writer honored. That's he's true. probably a writer. That might just be his big novel or something like that. But yeah, he's probably but... just a writer the whole time. As to why he's got that money, I don't know. Well, that's well, maybe, maybe, she, to be honest, maybe like, she's the one who's rich. Yeah, well, maybe. This, again, comes back to my point is if it was all materialistic, they wouldn't be in the same house. Also he, true. He, they would have been in some yeah. luxurious house with luxurious cars. I mean, I think he was driving a Mercedes maybe or something like that. Mm-hmm. But regardless, they look still like moderately successful couple. And I think the building blocks, yeah. the difference <clears throat> really was in his confidence and their relationship. And then the kids just have better confidence and a better outcome in their lives. Plus, well, that's what they're you're right at the end of the movie, too. Yeah. Like to have them wake up and like it's the wrong house. I mean, and like how you are you going to resolve yeah. that? Yeah. yeah, I think we've probably given it more thought than the yes. writers have. I think so, too. <laughs> that's our job to give it more yes. thought. The people who made the fucking movie. That's what we do here on the show. All right. Let's transition a little bit here. I want to get into more Back to the Future Part 2. Let's just jump right in. The future of 2015. Let's go hoverboards, flying cars, self-drying jackets, Nike sneakers. Harry, I just want to hear your thoughts on their vision of the future from this is 2015 as envisioned in the late 80s. Well, as I've said before, and I'll say again, the shoe. Oh, baby. Oh, golly. Oh, my. (laughs) Harry, are you a sneakerhead? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, <laughs> you might misunderstand what I'm talking about. Oh, okay. Elizabeth shoe. Oh, Elizabeth shoe. Are you talking about the shoes? You guys thought about the running shoes? <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Elizabeth shoe. 
Before we start going into Back to the Future, I just wanted to point out that I think that the original one is just a really well thought out, tight movie that just flows so well. And it's very simple. And then as we transition into Back to the Future 2, I think Back to the Future 2 has a bit more of an interesting story because they've kind of peeled back other layers with the science fiction and the time travel. And I really like that aspect of Back to the Future 2. What was your question? <laughs> Well, no, I, I mean, you bring up a good point, like, well, we'll come back to it as well, because it's tight. But yeah, no, I just wanted to talk about the future 2015 as envisioned here. And, you know, any thoughts? It's probably a broad question, but, you know, there's kind of a lot to break down with the future, even though it's only barely the, the first 80s, half. What 2015 would have looked like? Yeah, like what, you know, obviously they were kind of going over the top, right? But, you know, what are your thoughts about what we did see? Do you think that they were trying to make realistic predictions or if they were just being and goofy it's the future and some of the things that we did see i think it's a mix of trying to predict the future but also you know being a bit flamboyant and over the top with the choices for entertainment as well flying mm -hmm. cars is a stretch but i mean i remember in the 60s they thought like you know by you know the year 1990 or 2000 we'd all be living on the moon so these kind of you know predictions you know are hopeful predictions right you know we talked about star trek being hopeful a writer who's writing this is saying you know man i hope we have progressed enough that we have flying cars we should have flying cars by then so i don't really think it was an over-the-top prediction you know you're in the 80s you're saying 20 years from now yeah actually now that i think about it, flying cars is probably still way too much of a stretch but you know hoverboards Definitely think that that would be there. Holograms, I mean, you know, VRs around now, it's not to the extent of Jaws 19. By the way, I wish <laughs> Jaws 19 was here. Uh, really, really personal. <laughs> yes. Shoelaces and the self-drying jacket and the inflatable jacket. I mean, that's all awesome. I wish, you know, forget the shoes. I want my fucking hockey skates to just lace up by themselves. I hate putting my skates on. That'd be sweet. But I think everything else was pretty realistic to expect in a sense. That's just yeah, me. within reason. Within yeah, reason. yeah, Nathan, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's just a common conceit of you know movies from you know from that era projecting out to the future, and yeah, maybe it's a little flamboyant, but you know they're probably thinking, well, you know, it's maybe they're trying to kind of keep it futuristic and realistic at the same time, and it's sort of a weird you know line to walk. I hadn't seen this movie for quite a while, and when I was seeing this future, I thought, man, this is like a weird like mashup between Demolition Man and Batman Beyond. It was so <laughs> weird seeing some of these clothes. People are wearing like Faraday cages on their head. It's so strange. Yeah. The one thing I did like and I had a laugh at because I'd sort of forgotten about it was, well, I remember the Cafe 80s, but I think that's the one thing that they did it just as more of a joke. But it's also, they kind of predicted the future in a weird way with this nostalgia for the past. A nostalgia factor for, you know, the good old days kind of thing. But I, I like the way it was played here for a joke. 2015, you know, like, you know, the 80s was a big thing. I mean, I mean how many movies in the last 10 years have like, you know, taken place in the 80s? I mean, at least a handful. There are parts of it, though, that are just a, almost like too ridiculous. Like, oh, let's throw in some like bunch of laser, like hundreds of laser discs are being thrown out. I was like, well, this is future stuff now, right? The nostalgia in the store. What was the, the name of the store? Oh, oh man, I don't remember. the all you have. Yeah. yeah. Does he even have a name? Sure. Okay. But I mean, that's just like all like they're just kind of like throwing away all that kind of that junk there, right? That no one ever really cared about, anyways. You know, and like the weird joke about the dust cover and like dust-free paper. It's like ah, it's kind of you know some I some throwaway. Think the weirdest prediction is is they thought Wacko Jacko would still be black. Oh gee. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was his eighties version, oh, though, dude. Yeah, yeah. This was it well, this was eighty. If was, you were smart, it was eighty nine though. He would have become white in eighty nine. What did Michael Jackson look like? He was still fairly black in eighty nine. I think. Okay. Well, anyways, 
I also did like the kind of that video game again, like sort of that weird nostalgia thing where like many games now, sort of the graphical look of the 80s as well. That's a huge thing now with games. And so having that that arcade game there was, I thought, kind of a neat touch. Well, yeah, but what's interesting is that like in the 50s, it was a cafe. In the 80s, it's like a workout parlor. And in 2015, you it's both. Because oh, yeah, you got people is. on those bikes in 2015, right? They're in the cafe on bikes. Out of curiosity, what was your favorite or most interesting 2015 invention? Does it, I mean, doesn't have to the one that didn't come true. It's just what do you think is? Forget the flying car. So let's take the flying cars out of the picture, or the oh, or the boots or the jacket. Be, I think that was going to be it. But okay, no, the, no flying uh, cars, no shoes, no jackets, no hoverboard. There's all these other little things that you've seen. What, automated what serving. The automated serving in the cafe 80s. It's basically robot servers in a way because there are like the TV comes up and the Max Headroom yeah. ripoff. You order from that. They can give you a drink. There's one shot and it's very brief where like that one of those TVs is going down the road to some of the booths where presumably you can order and somehow you're going to get your your food and drink. I thought that was actually kind of interesting because like I kind of want to see that (laughs) right now. All right. So, Harry, let me get this straight. You want me to choose my favorite invention from Back to the Future 2, but I can't choose flying cars, hoverboards, self-drawing sizing jackets or or self lacing shoes. Uh, light up shoes because those are the obvious ones okay well then give me a pepsi i guess oh and actually i want to change my answer <laughs> <laughs> i want the vest that griff's uh, crony was wearing oh. <laughs> what about that baseball bat that it just grows bigger and bigger and bigger oh what the fuck is that used for like future baseball is that how the <laughs> cubs won murder ball that's how the cubs won yeah <laughs> death ball that's what it's called now <laughs> What about that plant thing when they go to the house? You see, like, you know, this whole, like, kind of, like, garden is, like... Oh, and the thing descends from the ceiling? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. exactly. Descends from the ceiling, and it's a bunch of plants just growing there. What the fuck was that? I thought that was... That was... That's weird. That's, like, like an odd salad bar. But I also think of, like, the infrastructure of the house, because it's quite tall. So what's above that kitchen there? No, it it tracks up in the master bedroom. So, like, at late at night, (laughs) you get the grapes and stuff. (laughs) Well, Harry, what would be yours, then? The plant. I was like, what the fuck is that? Definitely. I just meant, like, not your favorite. I just, what's the most one that stood out most interesting for you? I thought the uh, weather control service or whatever yeah, that was, was fascinating. Also, the, you know, which in the technology exists if they wanted to do it where you could pay by using your thumbprint. Yeah, that's not far off. They also yeah. had the thumbprint door as they brought Yeah, the thumbprint uh, door yeah, was there. Yeah. 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 And now what happens when the power goes out? Well, you fuck. Get out of your house. You're crawling. <laughs> yeah, you're crawling into the window at that point, which is still the same window from 1985, basically. Yeah. Um, so they predicted that we still have faxes, although now you have a fax in each room. That's true. Yeah. And at least it was a small fax machine. Fax machines aren't that small. I did think it was some of the things that were interesting when we get back to the McFly residence, the big flat screen TV that you hang on the wall. I mean, that was not something that they had in 1989. Brett and had that, it. What's that? Brett had it. Um, Tango and cash. Brett. Right, right. That's the thing that everybody's got a TV that just hangs on the wall now, right? Multiple channels. That's also a possibility. So some of those things in the house or video calls. I mean, that's a long been a trope of science fiction, but that's, you know, so those are some of the things where they kind of came a little bit closer to reality, which I thought was kind of interesting. VR, they're wearing like Oculus Rift here when they're eating dinner. I mean, not quite there, but that's not that far off. I mean, the the hydrated pizza is, I don't know why anybody, was the pizza too big? You can't bring a fucking pizza over to the house. You got to have a small freeze-dried pizza. I mean, come on, shit. What's your favorite invention, though? Well, the favorite would be definitely the flying car. But right. I said we can't choose the obvious ones. No, no. I, I, but now that we've chosen the non-obvious ones, what's your... Flying car? What's the one? I'd, I'd want that. All right. 
hoverboard, I think. Yeah, I think I'm on the hoverboard as well. I mean, flying car, yeah, but that's about five seconds before we're all dead in a smoking heap. Well, see, the way I figure is that I would just, like, McFly style, just hang on to Harry's flying car. Something goes wrong. I'm on the hoverboard. I'm going to be okay. I can just, you know, float down. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Harry. That's (laughs) quite all right. Feel free to hang on. Yeah, he's like, no. No, I just meant I'm sorry. I couldn't couldn't save you crashing your flying car. Oh, that's quite (laughs) So let's move along. Okay, so we've talked a bit about the future here. You know, everything works out hunky-dory. At least it seems that way. We come back to the alternate 1985. All we see is Hill Valley, obviously, which is a cesspool, gang violence, toxic waste, pollution, gambling, prostitution. Everything that Republicans fear is just around the corner because of immigrants is 1985 alternate (laughs) year. So I I don't know. I mean, was this a little bit, was this over the top? You know, does this kind of, you know, because this is basically designed to be Biff Tannen, unregulated, unfettered. You know, Harry, what did you think of the alternate 1985? Someone can point to the obvious, this is Trump's America now, right? But mm. that's obviously not the point. I feel this is more of a localized problem. Even though he's made a lot of money, I don't think he's... You could see in the news, I don't think he really impacted a lot of America. It just looks like he's just transformed this town into the sleaze fest that he likes. You could look at it now, it's a commentary on American greed and what it can translate into, I guess. But it's more just like, you know, you have a loser who's, you know, got a ton of money. What is he going to do? He's going to turn it into this, right? White trash bullshit. I guess it's part commentary, but I mean, it's just so focused on just the relationship between Biff and the McFlies. You don't really, there's not a lot of focus on any of the other aspects of, you know, society. Mm-hmm. That's just what I took at it. I love this aspect of the movie, though, because it's not really that everything went to hell because Biff's now rich and he's manipulated everything and he's killed George McFly, he's married mom. I just love the time travel aspect of it because when I was young, it was a bit confusing, especially with old Biff, because I always got confused when I was young, when I saw old Biff go and he comes back and then he's kind of injured and sick. Mm-hmm. And you don't realize at that point that he, since he came back, now he's died. He can't mm-hmm. exist in that timeline. I always found that kind of odd, like it never really lingered on that. So you're making a stretch to assume you just kind of vanished. I mean, is that true? I'm assuming that's what happened. Well, there is actually a deleted scene where he starts to vanish at the end there after he comes back. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I assumed is happening now as you watch it when you're older. I remember when I was young, I was saying, what What the fuck? Did he just get out of the car wrong? Is he having gas? Like, what the fuck? What's going on? Well, he's also an older guy. I mean, he... I mean, the stress of time travel caused the heart attack. I mean, there's any number of explanations for what's happening to him when he gets back. But, but just uh, to say this, it's yeah. a bit of a stretch that this old man who was a dummy his whole life is able to operate the DeLorean and knows what's going on. I know you can get a hint, oh, it's a time machine, but how to operate that, well, that's a big stretch for me. Yeah, to kind of luck into it. I mean, yeah. not just luck you know, into getting it and finding it, but... Because it's so specific how to operate yeah. it, right? Like yeah. inputting the time, going to 88 miles an hour, there's got to be fuel and Mr. Fusion and the whole thing. But yeah, you're right. It's a bit of a stretch, but I guess, you know, necessary for plots. I think I agree this is the most science fiction-y aspect here is the alternate 1985 where, especially when Doc kind of draws out, like this is... It's the parallel timeline. This This is what happened with the It's called Flashpoint, guys. It's called Flashpoint. Flashpoint. (laughs) (laughs) No, but this was the most interesting part in, you know, I think it could be my favorite part of the entire trilogy, this dynamic that's happening here. Yeah, it's up there for me, for sure. Yeah, Nathan, what are are your thoughts on 1985A? From a science fiction standpoint, 
it's pretty cool to see this. I kind of agree that like the idea that Biff was able to pull this off, definitely stretching it a bit. And it's where the movie starts kind of falling apart for me. I do. I mean, the, the aspect of going to this ultimate 1985, I kind of wish we spent maybe a little more time in this world. I always did kind of find it strange, though, that he was able to transform this town. It, for me, it's kind of like, you know, someone in car stairs got rich and turned car stairs into this hellhole or something like that. It's like you'd it's go somewhere else. McMurray hells in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, not. Okay, that's a little different, though. But it's already a hellhole. Harry. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you mean like before or after it burned down? I'm not sure. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> yeah, I just thought that, you know, he would just go someplace else. I guess there was no real reason to linger in this world but just introducing the idea and then drawing it out i mean sort of as i don't know like i mean when i was younger i was like i kind of I ate this up. You know, it's like dark and weird and it's like it's a little scary at times. I did also appreciate that they got like all of Biff's flunkies back as well and they're their older selves as well. It's all the same three actors. Billy Zane. Yeah, Billy Zane. Zane. And he got lions um, in this one too. Good for him. Does he? Yeah. Very brief. Very brief. Oh, okay. yeah, it's like two lines. Lines. as opposed to zero in the first. Oh, like you mean like right outside the hotel when they, yeah. they catch him that first time? We'll take so the easy way. Yeah. <laughs> But this is kind of the part of the movie, though, where things break down for me a little bit because, I mean, we've already had like a couple of throwbacks to the first movie, right, with the hoverboard chase scene, everything like that. It's like, OK, that to me, that's fine because we're going to have this part of the movie. It's going to tidy up, going to have a callback and that's OK. But then we still have more and more callbacks when he wakes up. It's the mom callback. Yeah, and I agree. And, and I hate yeah. it started to get a little trying to me, all the callbacks. Yes. And it just repeats and, itself pretty much in the third one, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, oh, oh boy, we'll get into that. To me, this is like where you know, I'll say it: the movie starts to become lazy, you know, in its writing. And, you know, I kind of wonder if part of that was because Zemeckis was initially not interested in doing a sequel. Is it Bob Gale? Is that the yeah. writer? Did he come? Writer. He did all three as oh, well. Yeah, did yeah, he not? Yeah. yeah. They were both because they're they own the rights. So they both did all three. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So I feel, though, that like this is where it starts to show up. Their heart is really not in it. Although, again, like I'll say that Thomas Wilson's alternate 1985 guy, like where he's kind of he's even more mean than the guy who was we first met in the first movie. You know, like we kind of have some fun. Thankfully, we don't linger here too long. I think it was just enough for what we had. If it was just going to be Marty and Doc just kind of getting into some hijinks with this Biff, that would have drove me nuts. I mean, the science fiction part I'd like, but there wasn't really enough of that for me. Mm. See, I kind of agree and disagree. I agree with you, Nathan, on all the callbacks. It gets too much, as we mentioned, and we'll probably talk about again. The third one, it just keeps repeating itself over and over again. You know, waking up with the mom and, and the chases at the beginning with Biff and, and all the, and him the, and the manure and all these kind of things. And it happens at the end of this movie, too. But what I loved how he had to go back again into the past and keep avoiding himself from the events of the first movie mm. after the future. And I loved all the science fiction aspect to it. It got complicated, but not overly complicated. It was just fun, and I felt it was still pretty tight. I am going back in the past to get the almanac after see so, escaping from the future. I love that aspect. Okay. I, I do like parts of it, but I, I'm going to bet that I'm going to be the sole dissenter on the second half of this movie. Because I, I think, Jeff, I think I know your opinion on it. But I will say that, like, there's parts of it that I did like. But I don't – we can get into a little bit more. But I'm, I'm not sure that, that it necessarily worked for me. Yeah, you will be the dissenter here because I love the <laughs> second half of the movie. I love the first half of the movie, but I just thought it was really 
interesting. I mean, I love the alternate 1985. I mean, the Thomas Wilson as the ultra mean, powerful Biff. He did such a fantastic job. He's such a horrible antagonist. Like, they've got to stop this guy to go back. You know, we got to go back in time. And we're playing with what we already kind of saw. So we get to see different aspects of the scenes. And Harry, like you said, some of the science fiction aspects, he's got to avoid himself while still making sure events play out. Yeah, I love that. As they did. Oh, man, that's such a great idea. And I I mean, it's played for comedy. You know, it's great. The physicality of it where he's trying to get the almanac back. And Biff's got that stupid girly magazine he puts the dust jacket of the almanac over it, covered up. And, I mean, all of that, I thought it was very tight, very, very well shot, well edited there. And, you know, Marty, he gets it, he loses, he gets it. Like, they just keep building the tension. And I thought that was very, one thing was very consistent with the first movie where they keep amping up the tension. They keep layering on other problems. Like, we saw this, shit, this went wrong. And then this went wrong. And then this went wrong. And it's the same thing here. And I thought it was just great. Uh, I mean, they did a great job with the second half of this movie. It's cool how they kind of, you know, they edited in the stuff from the first one and it all fits very organically. I thought they did a, I thought they did a really good job here. That was great. At the but, end. I love at the end when he goes back in time and Doc Brown's happy, like you see in the first one. And then yeah. Marty comes running around the corner again. Love back again. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to bring that up in a bit, but yeah, for sure. I mean, they did such a good job there because we didn't really talk about the finale of the first one and we should have where, you know, he's driving the DeLorean towards the power line or whatever, waiting for the light to strike. I mean, that was such a great finale in the first one. And they bring it yeah. back here and we're seeing the same thing and it all happens. And then they cut it cleverly. And, you know, Doc is cheering in the streets there. And then, and this is why I love the scores because they cut the music just perfect as he shoots around the corner and sprints down the street. And Michael J. Fox is such a great, you know, physical performance there. He's sprinting down the street. And the, the interplay there, I mean, man, that was so well done. I, I think absolutely the music at that, that point I agree with because, you know, it's a bit of a fast pace as he cuts. Like, it's a somber finale, like yeah. in the first one. And then, you know, we have the action again. But if you want to talk about the soundtrack again, it's an exact duplication of the first movie. You know, it's the same exact music. But, it's, but the thing is, there's no where variation they, to anything. No, no, that, but that's fine. Be, all the same. But that's fine because in that moment, they chose the exact right moment to cut the score in. Like, the main theme has a few beats to it. And there's, there's different... Like, the, the main theme stretches out, right? It has its ups and downs to it. But they cut the main theme at the exact right moment where it's a little somber, but starts to build just as he's darting around the corner there. I mean, it's, man, that... It's a good that, moment, but it doesn't make a sound. Ah, well, it doesn't make a soundtrack, but the soundtrack made that scene. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's a chicken and the egg, Will. Chicken and the egg. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's no, but that's what I mean. Like you're right, that doesn't make the soundtrack, but the soundtrack's there to make the move. And at that, like Back to the Future Two, like that moment right there, it's an okay moment. It's not good enough. Not the soundtrack is not good enough here. That's a great moment. That's a fantastic moment. Anyways, the soundtrack's only one aspect of a movie. Anyway, a good... I don't even remember where we were at the end of the movie. Oh yeah, I guess we were at the end of the movie. So. I guess we've talked about it a little bit. It was so as we come to the end of part two, was it too gimmicky? Was it just a rehash or is there more going on here? 
I don't know. It's somewhere in between, I think, because I, I think, you know, they, they wanted to do this movie uh, where they didn't want to do it. And then it's like, OK, we'll do it. We've got some ideas. But then they had so many callbacks. They're leaning on it too much. It's weird because for all the stuff that happened in the second half of the movie from when they go back to the 50s up until they're trying to get the almanac back. I mean, none of that worked for me. I think rewatching this and again, I had not seen this for probably a while. I mean, the movie worked a little bit less for me than how I remembered it. So watchable for me is still enjoy i think all the performances are very strong i'm a little on the fence about it yeah perry what do you think it's not as tight as the first one but i thought it was clever i like as we talked about i like the science fiction element here and that extra layer of complication actually except for seeing the future technology like when he first arrives and he sees his hometown transformed in the future i love that aspect and seeing the flying cars the jacket the shoes the hoverboard all that stuff the holograms. I hated all the callbacks, as Nathan said, because you're going with another chase again, even though he's substituting himself in for his son. And I hated the scene with the Griff, who's now Biff's son or something like that, or nephew or whatever it is. And that whole repetition, I hated all that aspect. It's terrible. I'm glad they didn't linger on that too long because I loved the, you know, they stepped up their game after that. Loved the future stuff with future Biff when they went back with the almanac complication and going back in the past. I loved all that stuff. So I thought it was very, very tight. I actually want to ask you guys, the movie ends with the ultimate spoiler trailer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. As it kind of gives away, you know, 15% of the third movie right there. What did you guys think of that? I mean, this is unheard of. Oh, it's definitely an odd marketing choice. And you're right. They do show there's no dialogue in it, but they definitely show like the pretty much the very end of the movie. And it's strange because it seems as though that they would have they have like, when they have shot the entire movie at that yeah, point and they as reveal well. Everything is OK. I wrote yep. this down. They reveal yeah. everything will be OK in the end. Yeah, I was I knew this was coming like. I remember that they had had like the little tiny preview or whatever, but I thought it was just, you know, just wacky old West hijinks, but they literally show the end of the movie that, yeah, exactly. That shows that, yeah, everything's okay. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's one thing that have like a little tiny preview at the end of uh, what the second matrix or whatever. But I mean, that was just like, you know, just like a nonsense teaser a little bit ahead of its time though, in a way, like kind of showing that, you know, preview coming up. Well, I remember back in the time, like the, especially with, after Superman 2, they said Superman 3 coming soon or James Bond is coming again or will return again and things like that. But this is an actual... With the title of the movie, I yeah, seem to recall. The, this a lot is of an them, actual yeah. spoiler trailer. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So this is a little piece of trivia for you guys. You have one person to blame for this. Robert Zemeckis, the director. I don't know if you guys remember back the little art house film with Tom Hanks called Castaway, also directed by Robert Zemeckis. You guys sure. remember the trailer for that movie? Yes. The end. Shows him, it does show the end. It shows him yeah. like his thin self with yeah. the package or whatever, right? Yeah, well, it shows him. Like I mean, that. in that trailer, it shows him after he cuts home. Yeah. Talking with Helen Hunt, <laughs> it's his fiance or his Oh, that's girlfriend. right. Yeah. <laughs> I remember trailers spoiling oh. everything, anyways. It's like, if you Robert Zemeckis' influence, it's not that he wants to spoil the ending. He doesn't like the idea for some reason that. It's a surprise what's going to happen. He wants everything to kind of be on the table and to be able to enjoy the movie anyway. That's Robert Zemeckis. He okay, said so as much. That's fine. But I'm kind of no, it's interested fine. in the fact that this was attached to the end of this movie. Well, it's one thing we... having a trailer by itself. This is like right at the end of the movie. The question yeah. I have, the reason why I'm asking is, does this rob the ending of this movie of any of its mystery or cliffhanger? Like it's, it's mystique. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think absolutely it does. But that again, that's Robert Zemeckis's influence. He doesn't want to leave you hanging like that. He doesn't like it. We should just call him Rick McCallum. Oh, Rick McCallum. I mean, <laughs> I'd rather call Rick McCallum Beelzebub, but, uh, you know. <laughs> 
fucking <laughs> the man. fuck's that guy? I mean, Jesus Christ. I found that. Anyway. I just found that shocking. I completely forgot about it. It is shocking. It's very odd that they did it. That is what they did. So just before we move on to part three, real quick, I don't want to say the moral of the story from Back to the Future versus Back to the Future part two, where Back to the Future part one, he's not trying to fuck anything up. Like he's just trying to like he goes back and inadvertently fucks everything up and tries to fix it. And in the course of doing so makes everything better. You know, Back to the Future two, they're trying to set things, you know, right. Like they, I mean, he didn't mean to fuck anything up, but he was knowingly trying to change the future with taking, or the idea of taking the almanac yeah, back. Well, there's so, a lot of inconsistencies here, and this starts with Doc Brown. You get the sense from him that he says, well, Marty, I can't tell you too much about your future, but he's saying, oh, I got to help you save your kids. You should just yeah. let bygones be bygones. Because he's also hesitant to tell Marty he's going to get into an accident. Right. And part three. So there's inconsistencies there within the story and with what's driving Doc Brown. In addition, Doc Brown doesn't give a flying shit about the Prime Directive because he flies in on his fucking flying DeLorean yeah. in the middle of the street at the beginning of the movie. Like yeah, the that's end of the right. Back to the Future part one in the middle of the day and the beginning of the part two, which is the same thing, same scene. But I mean, yeah. you would think he'd be a little bit more, he'd hide the fact that he'd have a, a little more DeLorean, discreet, little right? more discreet. Yeah. He's like, why are you coming in the broad daylight here? And the problem here is, is this type of movie, the filmmakers, it's not the focus. There's a lot of inconsistencies here because it's just a kind of a simple adventure with a sprinkle of yeah. science fiction. Yeah, well, they didn't expect to make a sequel, right? So when they ended Back to the Future Part 1, they were just kind of trying to do a sort of a fun cap on the end. And then when they made it a sequel, they had to make it consistent with how it opened because... The movie's not about really anything that transpires from the opening, right? Where it's like, well, you're, you know, it's your kids. Something's got to be done about your kids. That's not, the movie's not about the kids, right? It's about everything that comes after that. So they were just kind of, they were shackled to that because that's how they ended the first one without consideration for a sequel. You're right. Just, there's still inconsistencies with the character. You're not being consistent. Yeah. Doc Brown is a very inconsistent scientist. Also, no, don't forget that suitcase full of money from the past. So that sort of implies that he's, if he hadn't already, then he was going to just travel around the past and just, you know, gallivant around, which again is, is shown to be a dangerous thing to do, inadvertently making changes. And yet he's all that money from like 10 different time periods. But I think he was doing that to observe. And in order to observe, he'd probably have to go buy some clothes. He need the money, right? Well, no, I, I understand the practicality of it, but like just the idea, because he's so, by the time they're, they're about to go back, he's like, I'm going to, you know, destroy the time machine. He's so distraught over this altered in 1985. It's like any in, inadvertent changes, right? Like even the gambling thing, you would think that that's a fairly innocuous thing to do. And it's also would only be affecting a future that because then later he's talking about, you know, the future is not written. Well, you know, that you can make a few bucks then on the side, you know, it'd be okay for Marty to probably do it. But yeah, there's sort of those weird things that they just, they only really kind of come up with it for a scene, right? He doesn't tell him about the accident, but he wants to help him with the kids and so on and so forth. It's just whatever serves the yeah. scene at the time. Yeah. And then as mentioned, this is, you know, the filmmakers and writers are not really <clears throat> focused on making a consistent story. And that's why the first one is the most most tight storytelling because everything yes. is accidental. There's no, you know, you're not trying to do something on purpose here. Right. The characters aren't really trying to do anything. They're thrown into a unfortunate situation and now they got to get themselves out of it in the best of circumstances. Right. It's not Looper. That's what we're saying. Yeah. No. <laughs> Which is why your garden variety scientist is more desirable than your mad scientist. But so let's open 
into Back to the Future Part 3. I really like the opening scenes with Marty, like, back in 1955, Doc, and they have to, like, repair the time machine with the 1950s components. You know, I thought this was, again, like, from the start where, you know, Marty comes running down the street to, you know, he's trying to explain to Doc everything that's happened here. Again, some there's sort of some science fiction stuff here where, you know, like, Doc is, he's already watched the climax of the movie, and now it's like, oh, shit, stuff's just got turned up to 11. I like the interplay here where Marty's back in that situation with 1955 Doc Brown. I thought that was pretty cool. I really like the first act of part three here. Nathan, what, you know, like, what are your thoughts? I don't know. It's okay. I mean, for me, it's a little, it's a little weak in a way. I did sort of like the idea of trying to repair the time machine with 1955 parts. I think there's kind of something kind of cool there with, you know, trying to replicate future technology with the technology you have on hand. I mean, the interplay between the actors is still really great, but it's just a really means to an end, right? We're just kind of setting up like what the rest of the movie is going to be. So nothing of particular consequence is really happening here. I would almost like to see like, you know, a movie, not necessarily a back to the future type of movie, but like a movie of trying to jury rig, like, you know, future technology with your current technology. But, you know, you're working with 50s technology because I sort of like that aesthetic of, you know, vacuum tubes and, you know, junk like that. I think that's kind of a neat idea. Transparent aluminum. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, computer. <laughs> Good callback. Harry. So, Harry, what do you think here with the opening back yeah, in 55? Leaning more with Nathan, it's kind of just not really that impressed. I mean, it's okay. You know, it's kind of a cheat anyways because they don't really focus on how they fix it. They just say they fix it because the future Doc, who's now stuck in the past, is giving the 1950s Doc Brown the instructions. Well, they don't say how they built it in the first fucking place either. So how to repair it. But at least in the first one, you had a little bit of an explanation, even though it was a few short scenes about what the fuck is this? the flux capacitor not really saying how it works but you're at least you're talking about the tech you have some techno babble here it's just like it's happening in the background while the doc's kind of you know admiring the fact that he's stuck in the past talking about yeah. jules verne and these kind of things they were very they were okay scenes the chemistry still there between the actors but i feel a sense of repetition from the first one first movie being done here again like with him in his home and setting up models and i think they set up a model here again or something i'm not sure i can't remember but it just it just feels like a redo of the first movie and i think the rest of the movie feels like that too once we get to the the old west i just kind of want to talk about generally the old west setting of back to the future 3 this is obviously you know pretty different than what we've seen before we're going back way back in the past. I mean, obviously, we're not there. There's lots of legends of the Old West, but how did the setting play for you guys as far as being the Old West? Did this feel authentic? Was it a little over the top? Harry, what are your thoughts there? Bit of a mixed bag. You know, I'd lean more towards mm-hmm. over the top than authentic. I mean, I think the... I mean, you're dealing with practical sets, but I just feel that the small town didn't have a lot of high-quality sets built there. I mean, there were sets, mm-hmm. there were buildings. It just felt a little on the cheap, if you ask me. What really bugs me is more of the small universe feel that we've talked about in other franchises that, you know, again, it's a repetition of everything. Biff's yeah. ancestors are there. Marty's ancestors are there. They're all prominent figures. And everybody, you know, Strickland is there again. And, you know, everybody's kind of the same. It's the same character. That's the joke. You know, that could be, you could, one could say that's the charm of these movies. It doesn't work for me. It's just too repetitive. I'm not a fan of that at all. And the Old West, I don't know what they could have done because they went into the future. What else you could have done? 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. You can go further back in the past, and maybe they fight dinosaurs. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, what what point of the yes. movie? Yes, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's what right? we should have done. You're kind of stuck with your time period because you did the future, you did the fifties. I mean, where you're really going to go? Old West themes like a logical step to take, but at this point, I'm be honest with you, it's franchise fatigue for me. Mm. It's not strong so, here. Okay. Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, yeah, it's tough. Like, what time period do you choose? You know, you've done the 50s. You've done the future. You've, you know, you get your present time in the 80s. Like, what do you, if you're going to go further back in the past, then, well, you know, it's, it's tough to say what you would choose. Nathan, what's your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, the setting. I mean, I kind of said it with first two movies. I mean, the setting of 1955 is like somebody watched Greece and said, we'll do that. And this is movie old west for sure through and through i mean there's nothing it's as as authentic as a spaghetti western and so you kind of accept it as sort of movie logic i don't know where else you could go i mean you're talking about california so i mean like for a frontier town like going back even further but yet sort of try and keep with these characters and stuff so they're trying to go in these weird like repetitive circular motions of you know and, and that is the joke I think they wanted to try and juxtapose like going to the future. Like, hey, now we're going way back to the past because they're still staying within lifetimes that, you know, people they know are still there. This is, again, like where it's kind of lazy that they're doing the exact same thing. You have, you know, a Tannen show up and he's got his flunkies and he's harassing McFly and all the other sort of jokes that are in there. And they do the exact same scene again, like in the saloon, right? We've done this. And then they put a little twist on it. He wakes up and he sees his mom, but it's not his mom. You know, little things like that. And, you know, I don't know why Michael J. Fox has to like play all these parts. Like, you know, in the second one, I mean, it was out of control. And then this one, it's like, okay, we're doing this again. Come on now. And not just that, like you have the repetition of the love story. Like the main MacGuffin here is, in the first one, it was about parents. Then it's about his family and kind of him and his wife. And here you have Doc Brown and his love interest. And that kind of, you know, part of the side story here. So it's just a repetition of everything. I just don't find anything new here except for the setting. Yeah, the only thing that really, again, that saves it is just the performances are engaging enough that it's like I I can make it through these scenes. And that's just going to kind of carry us through the rest of the movie, I feel. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously the performances have carried us this far. I see what you guys are saying. I mean, obviously we're, we are repeating ourselves. This is the third repetition. I don't know if it's lazy or... And it's kind of like Star Wars where we have sort of rhyming stanzas. Rhyming, like, though, this is the exact same thing. Well, it's the exact same thing in Star Wars. Is well, this that is the problem? It's like invading the execution Star- is way different here than yeah. than Star Wars. Like if well, you're no, talking about no, the execution is different, but it is extremely deliberate here. I don't know if I'd call it. I get you. I mean, you could call it lazy. I mean, that's one opinion, but it is a very deliberate repetition. Whether it's lazy or by, it's just like, well, we can't think of anything else to do, so we'll do this. Or if it's by design, because there is a commentary on destiny here. If you you want to go down that a, road, but this just feels cash grab. I, I don't know. I mean, they did do a great job of cash grab because each of these films was significantly less successful. Yeah, that's not an excuse for their intention. If I've got nothing new to say here, why am I making this movie? If they really wanted to talk about the sins of the father or destiny, well, I, I think they would. I have, think they would have talked about that or lingered on those themes a little bit more. Maybe they would have if it was a more serious 
type of film, but it's not. Like so it is those thematic points are moot. I don't think that they're moot because then you you're bringing it back around where now those themes start to visit themselves on Doc. Like Marty has kind of fulfilled his destiny, and his next job is to pass that on to Doc Brown because Part Three visited the McFly family. Like nothing's happening with the McFlies in part three. Like we see them, that story effectively has concluded. And now we're on to Doc. We're taking care of Doc in this one. So yeah, some of those themes are coming around to him and it's not handled as well, but I mean, I don't know that we're struggling with a different thing here. And and the one scene that I think really works for that is the night before. And like, they've got the DeLorean all rigged up on the rails there And Doc is like, I'm not coming back. Like, I'm staying here. I'm in love with Clara. And Marty's like, you don't belong here. Tell me you're a scientist. Tell me what's right, you know, in here, right, in your head. I like that reversal where, like, Marty's learned from Doc, but Doc has also learned from Marty and his passion. I don't know that it's all worked out all that well, the fabric of the movie, but I think that emotional transference there really, that really worked for me, I thought that was a really touching moment. And because the performance is like that, that's what makes part three work is the emotional core. See, that's great. It's a great point, And I agree with you. It's a great moment. And I like that transposition of those character beats. He's thinking more scientifically. Doc's thinking more with his heart. Great stuff. That's a two minute scene. Now you could develop an entirely different story, which does not riff on the previous two movies, do a different story and still talk about those thematic points. They don't do that here. That's a two minute scene in a movie filled with riffing what came before. And that's what I don't take from. I don't know that I agree with that exactly. Let's let Nathan weigh in before we roll onto that. I'm a little aware, somewhere in between. I mean, Jeff, I agree with you. I, For me, that scene works. I wish, and I think that that idea is a solid idea. I wish they had done that for the rest of the movie. Exactly. And it probably, the riffing probably would have been a little bit more acceptable if I felt that that was the theme of the movie. Because that scene actually doesn't come to way later in the movie. Yeah, you're, you're almost so we haven't had that the last dynamic. 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah, Yeah, that's at the start of the third act or the end of the second. But even before that, you know, when he rescues her from falling into the ravine, when they realized that she was originally, she was in effect meant to fall in there, right? True, but again, that's just like, it's like a small moment that they don't capitalize on. Well, what else were they going to do with that? Great little... Well, I mean, well, I don't know. I'm not a writer, but I mean, like, I just sort of think that they had a, a strong idea. And this was, you know, the frustrating thing for me in the second one as well. It's like, OK, like I, a solid idea here that I wish they would capitalize on. And, you know, and when I say that they're lazy, I'm not saying that they're like, fuck, whatever, we're just going to crank it out. And we're just going to do this. We're sort of put in a position where like, OK, well, we didn't intend to do this. You know, you see this w- with some sequels that just don't work. Sometimes it's, you know, the execution is bad, but sometimes the, the passion of the filmmakers is not really there. I mean, they're professionals. They show up and they're, you know, trying to do the job and all the actors are, uh, none of the actors are slacking off. And I don't think Zemeckis is necessarily slacking off. I'm sure they all thought this was a great idea, but it, it didn't work. In a way, I think that the fact that the third movie came out so close to the second one is a little bit of a detriment because they maybe could have if they had had time to reflect on the second movie, they could have seen, oh, okay, we can just do, maybe we should just do something different with the third one. Keep it in the old West. The setting is fine, I think. And 
if the joke of the series is like the first like you know 10 minutes or 15 minutes you're just gonna riff on the earlier ones okay fine it's a comedy do that but then i i sort of wish that we'd had the reversal of the role marty being the logical one it would have been actually interesting like right at the start like doc's like i'm not going back i mean you'd, you'd have to sort of remove you'd have to maybe change the reason as to why marty goes back in the first place i don't know whatever but if earlier on doc is like i don't care i'm not leaving her then you have there's more stakes at the movie that was the other problem with the movie there's like other than him getting shot and you know he's not going to get killed not a lot of stakes in the movie whereas in the first movie it's not a serious movie it's a comedy but i feel real stakes to it and this uh, those that's just not present yeah. so again like jeff i agree with you on a lot of stuff but i mean i'm kind of leaning more towards harry where they didn't they just didn't really capitalize on a lot of these ideas that i think are really good god damn it <laughs> sorry man <laughs> no i i i mean yeah yeah you're you're right this I, is the difference of opinion i mean i'm not i'm not even saying that it's necessarily even like terrible but it's just like for me like some of those flaws maybe kind of overpower like some of those ideas that you're talking about no 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 jeff sorry to pounce on your childhood love but the movie is not <laughs> I will say, I actually, in the rewatch, I think I like the third one a little bit more than the second one. In the past, it was always the other way around. But like rewatching it recently, I was like, I kind of enjoyed the third one maybe just a little bit more. I don't know. Seen another movie right before I watched the third one. Maybe I was just on a high after that. I don't know. So I think the third one, like just like taken on its own, I think the third one, like if you were to forget about everything else, I think the third one has a, has a better structure and flow to it than the second one. The second one is kind of disjointed because like they have to deal with the end of part one where they never expected to. And so they got to do some clunky things. They got to put Jennifer to sleep and throw her on a bench and they got to do some goofy stuff before they get to the meat. Like, Part two doesn't really start until act two. The first act in the future is just a throwaway. We're act where back to the future three, they kinda the whole movie is a little bit more cohesive. So I think that I feel that that's what you're you're sensing there. I mean, I, I understand like part three is a not exactly the well loved iteration of the series here, but I think that there's more going on here. I really like the relationship between Christopher Lloyd and Mary Steenburgen, Steenburgen, however you want to pronounce her name. They have good chemistry. There's um, nothing there, man. I mean, it's not that there's a <laughs> lack of chemistry. It's just a very, it is so superficial. There is nothing of value I see here. It's just, no, I totally disagree here. They connect over. That's just Jules Harry's Verne cold, dead heart son. coming out. Yeah, that's yeah. all. <laughs> it's cold, mechanical I like Jules and I like Jules Verne. So do I. Oh, my God. Yeah, but that's, but that's great. every relationship in the series. But there's nothing more than is, that, man. And they don't, no, but nothing's more. No, no relationship more in the whole series. It's, again, it's all sold on chemistry and the performance. There's nothing more to their relationship than there is to Marty and yeah, Doc's relationship. There's nothing there's less. Not, there's nothing the same, much there, right? but there's no it's, focus on that relationship at all. But there's here. no focus on anybody relationship it's just it's, this relationship it's not that there's yeah. a lack of chemistry between the actors it's you know mary steenbergen or Burgeon or whatever and she does an okay job and christopher lloyd does a good job it's not that i don't buy the relationship it's just you know he's i guess he's a loner so he'll take the first girl who he'll come across expresses any interest in science but i don't know it, it just fell flat well, there's, there's it only the took love 80 years, sight. right? <laughs> it's just, it felt There's the love at first sight aspect, but even Marty talks about that with Jennifer. Love it. He said it was love at first sight with Jennifer. We don't question that it's, it's just not as strong as the first movie. It, no, with, no. With respect to the love story. No, there's nothing. The no, no, I'm, I'm not gonna, saying that it's strong. as There's nothing you're, you're, as strong as the first 
not a love at first sight, but a love at first act almost because he comes to her rescue and then it's kind of love at first sight after that point because she never really saw George McFly, if you know what I mean. She didn't always look past. Now she'll see him. That's love at first sight. Here, it's a little different. It's not as strong. It is different for sure. You know, we got to give Doc his emotional payoff. I guess that's part of the motivation. We got to give Doc his emotional payoff. That's what I mean. It's just, okay, we got to find another love interest. Let's find someone for Doc. He's got to find his happy ending too. It's just well, no, they found everything up in a little pe- nice little they, package. Yeah, and- well, the, but that's we got. We found him a pretty scientist girl. I mean, that's what we're gonna to, do, to right? Me, I mean, to, she's got to, more to depth to than me, Jennifer. You know, this would feel like, even though Return of the Jedi kind of wraps everything up in a in a nice little package, it feels like in the midst of Luke trying to do everything he had, they had to cram in a movie where he had a love interest in Return of the Jedi as well. Here's the difference, though, is here is Doc finds his future with her. He finds it in the past, but that's what it ends up being about is finding your future. And that's what happened. <laughs> Did you read that right? off a Hallmark card? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it was a Hallmark card and it had a pretty elephant on it. What do you want me to do? I don't know. Find your, well, find I, the let's future. just agree to disagree. I completely no, but disagree. It's, but it's about, okay. I know that it's that's what the movie is about. It's just not strong. I don't even know where my notes are. I think I just scribbled on my notes, Harry's the devil here. I didn't even do that much. <laughs> okay, so here's one thing I did want to bring up here. So let's talk about Marty a little bit, because we haven't really gone into his character a bit. So they added some items in part two and part three that weren't in the first one, where he doesn't like being called chicken or whatever. He doesn't like being called a coward. And that was not in the first one. In the first one, where he is interacting with George... And he can't believe how much of a pussy George is, right? Like, this is his dad, and he's just a gigantic wuss. And part of him sort of training George to be more confident was just, like, his incredulity at this guy being such a giant pussy. I think that's kind of what led into the more obvious overtones of, you know, what are you, yellow? I kind of want to talk about that thread a little bit. If we go back to part one, he didn't try to fuck anything up, but he just kind of fucked things up because of his presence there by accident. And then he tries to fix things. Accidentally kind of gives his father his own courage. He had sort of the same fear of rejection that his father had, but he still would stand up for himself. He gave his own father that. But where did Marty get it originally? If his father didn't have it. But you like, don't want to be raised... like your parents. Yeah. But we all that, are. Well, we are. We, we are. That's a thing, though, that he's ashamed of, though, with his father. You mm-hmm. see that a lot in the first movie. Marty doesn't say anything. It's just that he's got that look on his face the way Biff is pushing around yeah. his father. And, and then his son, too. And he becomes ashamed of that. You know, I did find it odd that they introduced this character aspect in the second one because it, it's such a large part of the second and third movies. I mean, it's fine, whatever, but it, it's a little clunky. I think they could have had a better way to... And again, like, I know that they didn't they didn't think that they were ever going to come back and do C. So like, okay, well, we got to think of something. I wish that they had tried to incorporate it a little bit more with the idea of he grew up seeing his father getting pushed around. He's like, I'm not going to be like that. Mm. And so he overcompensates. I don't know if they really went through all that thought process necessarily, but but they they do it a couple of times where like somebody calls them chicken and it it just kind of escalates. It sort of feels like I'm watching somebody who's written a TV show for the first time. Yeah, that's what I feel like too. Because you're in a situation in the future where the character of Marty McFly, like he's knocked out his son. He's been instructed by Doc to save the situation, but not getting involved and causing an issue. And just the mere fact of being called a chicken leads him into that chase and 
it just feels like it's something that a smart person won't do, and then he still doesn't learn that lesson in the third one. And I, it's one thing if these character traits are serving the story for a good purpose, but here it just feels like it's serving the story for a gag. In the third one, they're able to kind of wrap it up in a nice little package where he doesn't race at the end and now his hand is okay. So, hey, everything turns out fine. I learned my lesson. <laughs> so it's yeah. okay. Well, it's, no. it's clunky. Yeah. No, but he learned his lesson before that because in, in the yeah, in the saloon. Yeah. So so if we go back to the first one, basically Marty instills in his father the confidence to stand up for himself. And he, you know, in a crisis situation, punches Biff in the face to rescue Lorraine. And then later on when he's in the dance uh, and that buck motherfucker cuts in <laughs> on his dance, he comes back over and bullies that piece of shit to the floor. And is, is kind of he's kind of aggressive there in, in that situation. And then we kind of come back around here to part three and he's in the saloon everybody's looking at him to be the hero to be courageous and go out and he's like he's an asshole like i'm not going out there and doing that that i'm not playing his game he learns his lesson there and tries to talk his way out of the situation he ends up you know punching mad dog tannin in the face with a metal plate in the end I kind of thought that was an interesting juxtaposition there where like George had to win the day by stepping up and being more aggressive and Marty tried to win the day by stepping off, having a more intellectual approach, like talk his way out of the situation, even though he still had to punch his way out. But he tried the talking approach. So, yeah. I think the through line is just not there for me. Like I can sort of, I see where you're coming from and I agree. And that's kind of a neat character arc, but I sort of feel like they didn't really consciously tied together very well. Not only that, if what you're saying is true, Jeff, then it's still inconsistent when he goes back to the present and he's still tempted to race because at that point it would not even be an option for him anymore. No, he, I'll tell no, you why he wasn't tempted. I'll tell you why he wasn't tempted. Oh, man, you're because he so shifted. I don't know what you're reading into. No, no. He was tempted. No, no, I'll tell you why he wasn't tempted. Because as soon as Needles is like, let's do this, Marty puts his truck in gear. What gear does he put it in right away? Reverse. He doesn't change gears afterwards, change his mind at the last minute. He puts it in reverse right away. I know it's a movie. It's meant for dramatic purposes. But he would have just, if you're saying he's just, he'll talk it out, he would have just ignored it then, too. So he, he wouldn't did. have even bothered just, to race dram- backwards. That was dramatic effect for the movie, though. Yeah, but I don't know. It just feels inconsistent. Because he's just like, buddy, I'm going to race that asshole. Like, he's like, no, there's no way I would have done that. Nah, I think they're going to handle it better. You might be right that he didn't switch gears. It doesn't matter to me. It feels the way it's presented and directed and written. It feels like right up until that green light, he was tempted. That was dramatic tension, though. Okay, for, but then it's still filmed yeah, that way, man. Right? It doesn't matter. So then that's the fault yeah, of the yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, that's, that's the fault of the movie. That I'm he was... If he put it in reverse right there, he was just fucking with needles at that point. If he was fucking with needles and needles, he wouldn't have raced backwards. Because to me, that means that he had to go back almost so fast because he was right on that line of going forward. He had to like... If he was just calm and rational and he knew what he was doing, he would Ah. just not even move. He's still 17. Yeah, I was about to say, he's still 17. Give the guy a It's great that you're trying to justify some of these character threads here. It's just, I think there's a lot of stretches here, especially with this third movie. Well, this is one man's opinion. All right. <laughs> Let's, okay, so we'll come back to the end of part three in a second here. I, I just want to revisit a couple of items here before we kind of wrap it up. Let's talk about time travel a little bit, because that's obviously a big part of the film here. So did they get it right? If so, what did they get right? If not, What did they miss? What did they not get right about time travel? What works? What doesn't work about time travel? Nathan, why don't you start? 
Well, what works is that you can only do it in a, in a DeLorean. It's the only yeah. cool way to no <laughs> shooting around the sun, yeah, no phone booths. You want DeLorean. No, yeah, you're not fucking around here, man. You get in that car and you go. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a little hit or miss, I think, with some of the logic. I think they have like a lot of like neat ideas, but certainly for the first one, a strength is, you know, you just sort of accept the movie logic of it. They kind of make it fun. It's weird how like you have like the time travel aspect, but it's not, it's just a plot device for the whole movie, right? Because I mean, aside from a couple of science fiction aspects, it's not about, it's not necessarily about the dangers of time travel. Parts of it are, but that's not like in front and center, even though they're trying to like, you know, like in the first one, he's trying to save himself, but it's only sort of tangentially related to time travel. He's just sort of in the wrong place. You know, they have like weird logic problems. Thing with if being able to go back to the future, I felt like leaving jennifer on the porch that like it didn't follow some of that movie logic but you know i don't care like in these movies you just don't care about that because it's just fun enough that you can sort of gloss over it the way they portray it is i think functional for the story and you know they have fun with it i'm no scientist but i mean i think they on a broad level in a very simplistic level handle it right because this is supposed to be fun goofy adventure with a bit of science fiction in there i mean they do talk about paradoxes and causality loops and these kind of things because the consequences of this with the exception of yourself you'll never be born and you're disappearing right in front of your eyes i mean that's a bit weak who knows what the right answer is but you know i enjoyed it for the most part in part two when you're talking about parallel universe or parallel timeline and these kind of things i enjoyed those aspects of for young kids and even adults of today just to enjoy it on a very broad level. I think it's very appealing and it's pretty clever, if you ask me. I mean, I have my problems with some of the logic. I mean, yeah, to like kind of witness yourself disappearing and the photo disappearing, that yeah. doesn't make a whole lot of sense there. No. My only problem with the first one, if they had removed that, it's almost perfect. And then as we get to two and three, it feels like it's less important you know, what could happen with time travel there. You know, some of the things that I did like is when Marty comes back in the first one, when he comes back to the future 10 minutes early and he witnesses the events there. I mean, that felt like a cool idea to portray it. Like you could see what had happened to you already. That was the only scene where anybody had witnessed events that had already happened. And I thought that was kind of neat. The best part I thought was Marty writes a letter to Doc in the past. You're going to get shot, take appropriate precautions, and Doc rips up the letter, but then decides not to, and he's and it turns out he was wearing a bulletproof vest the whole time, or, I yeah, mean, or wasn't, but that was the best piece of causality there, the best loop. You know, the alternate 1985, I thought, was pretty neat. But they're, they're a little inconsistent with how it works, like with Biff coming back to 2015 after he changed the past you know, the explanation that I've read from Zemeckis and Gale was that the future had changed around them, but they didn't know because, you know, they're just out standing out in the street. So they wouldn't have known if it changed around them. You know, OK, I guess. So there's a I little inconsistency. Yeah, it's OK. It's an OK explanation, I guess. It's I, fine. But I always like thought of it as because they didn't belong in that time. They still sort of anchored that timeline, which would have yeah. allowed Biff to kind of come into. To it and exist as himself and then once they left then it was kind of gone in a way not very yeah. scientific i mean i i think i'm taking that from a pen and paper role-playing game that uh, yeah. particular time travel logic so 
But I mean, that's the way I kind of worked it out in my mind. They sort of deliberately left it open-ended. I mean, there is a scene, if you go and watch the special features on the Blu-ray, they did film the scene where Biff disappears or vanishes in the future after he gets out of the DeLorean. So uh, they decided to cut that because they wanted to leave it, you know, a little bit more ambiguous just so you don't, I, I think it was more just so you don't linger on it. And you're like, well, what the fuck's going on here? That than what happened before. And that's okay. I think that's all right. So let's talk about just the ending of part three real quick where Doc comes back in the train time machine. He's got the kids. Harry, let's start with you. Just the finale to the trilogy with the train coming back and Doc with the kids and the family and everything. What are your thoughts here on the finale? It's a kids movie, family movie. So, you know, you got to have that happy ending because... I think if you wanted to be a bit more, I wouldn't say ballsy, but a bit more realistic, I think just like how Doc was sending him mail originally in, in the end of the second one, I think maybe he could have seen through, they could have shown a little scene through history that, you know, he found that Doc had a good life. And then maybe at the end, after Jennifer, they could went to visit maybe one of his descendants. They could have done something with makeup. I think that could have been a bit more of a heartfelt moment instead of just him flying in and everything's okay and he's got a magic train and fuck, I mean, geez, <laughs> I hated that fucking train. Yeah. Uh, it's a little goofy. You know, it's, it, again, it's a family movie meant for kids. I'm not a fan of it. I wasn't a fan of it when I was young. Just felt a little too tidy. And I know you don't have a lot of time left to deal with a suggestion like what I said, but it's necessary, I guess, to wrap the movie up, but I'm not a, the biggest fan. Oh, I don't even know, like, where to begin on how to break this down. <laughs> like, again, he comes in during the day, too, right in the middle of the street on the train tracks. Yeah. Also, yeah. the DeLorean, when they had the whole plan to get Marty back, again, just daytime, you know, like, right in the middle of traffic, too. You know, it's crazy. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I get it. It's a family film. You want to have this type of ending and, like, you know, kind of have one last wow for the movie, I guess. And, again, like, you know, just we're doing all the same things we did before. So we got to end it on the same note. We got to fly into the camera kind of thing with basically it is a magic train. No way he could have built that fucking train in the past to go to the future. I'm just, I'm going to say it right now, it is not possible. <laughs> I will buy a lot in these movies. No, he, he went to the future. He built a regular train with a flux capapacitor and then went to the future and had the cover conversion done. Wrong. Wrong. But that's is what he said. Possible? He's already been to the future. <laughs> I know. I get that. But how did he build the train in the past? Uh, I don't know. It's, it's no, powered by steam. <laughs> Fuck that. No, 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 no. It was powered by love. No, I, you know, what? that is, that is that as good as an explanation. It is as good of an explanation. Yeah, um, it's pretty hokey. Like this whole thing is a trope it's and it's hokey. Yeah, and, it's hokey. I don't know. And I get why they did it. I get why they did it. All right. It's like, yeah, I understand what's going on here, but you know, it's funny and stuff, but it's just like, oh, all right, fine. I find, I guess that that's what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm not bothered so much by the flying train or the kids or the whole thing. What bothered me about the end, I mean, all of that's ridiculous. But Doc gives Marty the picture. It's all good. We get our feel good moment. And then Bonehead Jennifer comes up and she's a bonehead. And she's like, Doc, I took this piece of paper from the future and now it's erased. What does yeah, it have mean? To explain like, it. Everything's going to be okay. Such. A moron. But, but what I didn't like that. is... It's the film. No, it's not about the that. The writer is trying to tell the audience everything 
is well, okay, yeah, guys. exactly. So basically, Doc turns to the camera. I mean, he turns to Jennifer, but he's turning to the audience and saying, "It means your future's not written yet. It's whatever you want it to be." And it's like, you know what? That's not the facts from what you've showed us. Yo, Joe. The facts is is the fact <laughs> is that they should have ended with that. Yo, <laughs> yo, Joe. The, the fact is that. Your future is only not written. Your future is only what you make of it if you already know what it is, because then you could change it. Marty's future was that he was getting in that accident, growing up to be a worthless bureaucrat with kids that didn't like him who were going to jail. If Marty didn't know his future, that's exactly what was going to happen to him. His future was written because he didn't know what was going to happen. The only reason... He was able to rewrite his futures because he knew what it was, so he was able to change it. And that is contradictory to the message. That's what I didn't like about Doc's ending is like, you can do whatever you want with the future. It's like, yeah, but you could only change it if you know that you made the wrong choice. And he's also passing that lesson on to his kids because he talked about the dangers of time travel and yet couldn't stop himself from building another time machine, having kids that they just go have adventures through time. Well, because Doc knows. It's like, well, your life's going to – you're going to make mistakes and you're not going to know your life's going to be shit. Let's make sure. He's like, fuck this dirty shit water. I'm not dealing with this. We're going to the future. Yeah, exactly. We're going to the future. (laughs) We're going to figure out what the right answer is and we're going to change it. Doc's a Republican, no doubt about it. So – Whoa. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Not to get political. That's kind of the end of Back to the Future. So, Harry, why don't you start thoughts on the overall trilogy? Anything else you want to bring up that we might have missed? In general, I thought the biggest improvement was adding Elizabeth Shue to Back to the Future 2. <laughs> Even though she's fucking basically uh, rohypnol right in the first fucking scene. Nice pants. Yeah, we nice pants. Nice everything. Libyans. We forgot to talk about Libyans. <laughs> we forgot to talk about the Libyans. Let's talk about the Libyans. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that part. The one thing that stands out for Back to the Future to me is just a lot of franchises, whether it's trilogies or beyond that, is that the first one is generally viewed as it's really tight. It's focused. It's genuine classic, and it deserves to be that. The sequel kind of, if it's a good enough sequel, flips it adds in different layers and can flip it on its head and it can be an enjoyable movie in that right and it can be argued to be whether on par better or just slightly less valued than the original and then the third one or kind of the cap or two a trilogy or a franchise it falls into this the sequelitis where you're just it's franchise fatigue and running out of ideas and it's really hard to kind of wrap up a story very effectively and i feel that those tropes are well represented here in back to the future in this trilogy Yeah, you know, like the first one I think is definitely a real classic. The other two, I think, kind of fall into a problem where, you know, with some sequels, the filmmakers, like the that initial passion for the first one is just not there for later movies. I don't think they necessarily half-assed it, but, you know, I think they were kind of put into a position where like, okay, well, we want to do this. You know, we we still have a love for the property, but maybe they really did think that, oh, this will work because these are all the things we did before and you know they were great jokes so if we kind of do it again maybe they thought they were putting a twist on it plus sometimes you know when you go from writing it right to shooting it right to editing it things can kind of change and stuff like that so i don't know if they ever had like some different ideas without kind of getting into any sort of ranking system it's you know a little disappointing to see how they turned out and they're not like the worst movies in the world by any stretch i think it's just a matter of expectations 
there's certainly no question that, you know, it's hard to follow such a, you know, Harry, you talked about it a lot. The first one is so tight. I mean, it's a very tight screenplay. It's well edited. It's well directed. And then two and three, I kind of see two and three as one film because those two sort of stick together. They're more consistent with each other than either of them is consistent with the first one. And there's a separation there. And even though it's still Back to the Future, we have the same characters. The second and third ones don't have the same look or feel as the first one. They introduce new ideas, new themes. You know, but that being said, I mean, there's some value to the sort of the back half of the trilogy, if you want to say it that way, where they try to expand the characters. It just comes to a little bit of, you know, trying to do the bigger and better when you make a sequel. Spectacle of the future in the second one. And, you know, it's a little goofy. And then the third one where they, you know, they're doing the spectacle of the Old West. And it, it just doesn't seem to quite line up to what was happening in the first one. The first one was a much more personal story about the family, right? About the McFlies. And then the second and third one aren't really about the family story. They're more about saving the timeline, if you will. So it gets a little big for its britches, I suppose. I don't know that they lost the passion. Like they wanted to come back and they didn't really have much to come back to. So they had to force the story out a little bit. Considering those restraints, I think they did all right there. So well, let's talk about the rankings. Nathan, why don't you rank the films for us and we'll maybe get into our customary rankings of what your recommendations are for the films. And is this a rare antiquity, as we like to say? As far as rankings go, I mean, the first one is at the top. I find it a little hard to classify the second two, to be honest. I mean, I think they're pretty much at par with each other. And, you know, Jeff, you're right. They're kind of like one movie in a way. You know, probably helps with the fact that, that, you know, they shot him at the same time. So I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm actually ranking the third one a little bit above the second one. A couple of years ago, I would it would have been the other way around. But I don't know, just something something else has happened. And that's just how I'm going to rank them. Harry, what do you think? I guess I'll talk about the individual movies and then a trilogy as a whole. So individually, I enjoy watching the second one more than the first one on a personal level, mm. just because mm -hmm. I find it slightly a bit more rewatchable. But in terms of a recommendation, the best one is definitely the original followed by the second one. And the third one is Attack of the Clones garbage level shit. So uh, <laughs> it belongs wow, in, that, that's in tough, that junkie. Man. Attack of the Clones? Yeah. It belongs, you know, they can hold each other's hands in the Sarlacc as they are digested over 1,000 years. And as a trilogy... I showed my cousins, younger cousins, had never seen, you know, they're in their 20s now. They had never seen Back to the Future, and I showed them the first one. They loved it, and I never wanted to show them the second two because I've always wanted them to see the, the second one, but then I'd have to wrap it up with the third one, and I'd feel that would tarnish their enjoyment of the brilliance of the first one, even though I enjoy the second one, if you get my meaning. As a yeah. trilogy, I think, as a whole, it doesn't really work. It works in terms of telling a story, but it's not strong enough for me to recommend the trilogy as a whole. With respect to a rare antiquity, I would say actually the first two are rare antiquities, and the third one is not. And mm -hmm. the reason why I say the second one is is because I think it adds enough layers with respect to the time travel to make it interesting enough, and I never saw anything like that before. So I would rank the first two as definite recommends and rare antiquities, and the third one is just such a steaming pile of crap. I, it just ruins the trilogy, in my opinion. Okay, so if I get a rank, I mean, obviously the first one, Head and Shoulders, is the best 
film of the three. Harry, I'm kind of with you sometimes where I like watching part two just as a movie, almost above the first one. But I'm almost with Nathan in that three seems to be a better film than two. Like, just as a movie, uh, I don't find it a steaming pile of crap. Although, I, I mean, I don't begrudge you your opinion. I can see what you're saying. This is a tough one. I mean... Rare antiquity speaking, I think that whether you take the first one as its own or you take the trilogy as a whole, I mean, typically when we're talking about rare antiquities, we're talking about more obscure films, and these are not obscure films. These are big hits and Back to the Future, but they don't they don't make movies like this. Again, we've talked about this before, where movies from the 80s tend to have these more simplistic storylines, but in a good way, like... We don't get the customary twist at the start of the third act. It's a very clean narrative thrust through the film, and I really appreciate that. I like that. Well, we have good performances and a, a likable protagonist. You know, part two, I mean, I love the future. I love some of the, the darkness to it. Part three is goofy, no doubt about it. But I, I mean, I think the performances kind of take it. So, oh man, I, I don't know. I'm going to rank two above three, but just barely. Rare Antiquity, yes for Back to the Future, no to the to the second two. So the one thing I want to talk about before we wrap everything up, guys, is we know it's customary now in Hollywood to remake every motherfucking movie ever known. We have Ghostbusters, we've had Transformers, Star Wars, I mean, everything's getting rebooted. This is probably not going to get rebooted because... Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis own the rights, and they both have indicated that it will never happen in their lifetime, if ever. But could that work today? What would it look like? I'll tell you exactly what it looks like. Fucking right. Fast and the Furious traveling back into the past and into the future and creating one convoluted big pile of shit. That's what it'll look like. So no, yeah. it should never be remade it, All right. If it hey, was good. done, it would be terrible. It would have to be so much more complicated to be not only be different, but I feel that even though I think Back to the Future is pretty simple and it's timeless, I still have doubts that millennials of this age would be able to sit through it. Just not mm. enough twists and turns that they are used to. I think there is. It's just there's a risk there. I don't trust millennials. They suck. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's God, just, you couldn't do it with, like, if it was a 30-year gap, because I don't think that right now is all that different from 30 years ago, whereas I feel like the 80s is different enough from the 50s. There's enough comedic material. But if they did remake it, the way it would look like is Marty and Doc zipping around through time. Biff would also have, like, his own time-traveling car. It would be, like, this crazy, they'd be chasing through time and blah, blah, blah. And then the third act twist would be that Doc Brown is Marty from the future. No, Doc, <laughs> no and, and also Doc Brown at the end of the third one, at the end of the trilogy, he'll fly in on a time-traveling dinosaur. That's what he'll do. Holy shit. Amazing. Okay, now I want. Yeah, I want time-traveling dinosaur. That'd be pretty awesome. <laughs> no, I want the movie to be about the time-traveling dinosaur. Yeah, so do I. That'd be great. And no one, nobody else? Nobody okay. else. Just him. If you were to remake it, finding the right actors and the right story, they fucked Ghostbusters, they fucked Transformers. I don't think it'd be possible. The only... They did remake Star Wars, A New Hope. It's a little bit outside. The only thing that I'd want to see, the only thing I could see, because it'd be a bit of a, a joke. Like, if you're going to portray the 80s, it'd be a bit of a joke. But if you had Marty go back to the 80s, and then Doc Brown is like, well, who's president of the United States? 
in 2017. And Marty's like, Donald Trump. And he'd be like, Donald Trump? That'd be the only thing I want to see. That would That'd be-, be the only joke. I'm actually usually okay with remakes, but there's two that I do not want, and it's Back to the Future and Big Trouble in Little China. Any other remake, I'm fine with, even though they are remaking Big Trouble in Little China. I'm not okay with that. Till the cameras start rolling, I don't think that one's going to happen. I don't know. The Rock has a power in him to he make does. this bullshit could, happen but i could live with big trouble in little china if it was the rock and no one else no yeah, i'll tell you no, right no, now that's a whole other discussion anything is possible now if star wars was you know given a soft reboot here anything is possible nothing is yeah possible. and i have read that where they're saying that as long as they're alive it's not going to happen but yeah harry i kind of agree with you like i don't think that kids this day would really think it's all that great yeah. No, because right. I mean, it's more of a simple story, right? Yeah, yeah I don't think there's a market for it. No, there's not a market for it. have to be stories like this now are happening on TV. Yeah. Like, I feel a time-traveling storyline is more suited for TV, a, a dumb TV show. Yeah, well, and there is like four TV shows right now with dumb time travel tropes. This is too simple to be remade. I don't think it's going to happen. I think that's Back to the Future, guys. Thanks for coming on the show. As is our custom, Harry, why don't you melt our faces with your next selection? Well, I don't think I'll melt your face, but game over, man, game over. I had a different pick. (laughs) I had a different pick, but with the untimely death of great character actor Bill Paxton, I changed my pick, and we will review the one movie he did direct and star in 2001's thriller, frailty all right interesting that's our special edition a podcast of rare antiquities episode number 30 as we truck along nathan thanks for joining the show tonight we appreciate your opinions thanks for having me yeah and harry uh thanks for coming on the show and disparaging one of the greatest trilogies of all time you can go fuck yourself thanks for coming out <laughs> You're not going to re-record that ending? No, no, we're going to leave it as is. It's a rock. All right, all right. Well, thank you, guys. It was fun, and we'll see you next time. Well, that's very nice. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? <laughs>